VOCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host, Patty Daly. Well, all right, and good morning to you. Thank you very much for tuning into the program. It's Monday, June the 26th. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly, and David Williams. He's produced the program. Let's get the week off to a flying start. That requires your participation in the program. So, if you're in the St. John's metro region, the number to dial to get in the queue and on the air, 709-273-5211. Elsewhere, toll-free long distance, 1-888-590-VOCM, which is 8626. So, I guess it's some form of holiday here in the city of St. John's. Not a shop's closing holiday, but some do indeed get the day off, whether it be Discovery Day, which was it was once called. Now we're in the middle of a consultation process to give it a new name. I thought I heard someone this morning call it June Day. Okay, so John Cabot, aboard the Matthew, and a crew of 18, sailed from Bristol, landed on our shores, took the land in the name of King Henry VII, uh, happening on this day in history as the story goes. And then, of course, the stories that have been passed down through history about the cod were so thick, you only had to dip a basket into the water to come up with a full basket of cod. But anyway, it's some sort of holiday here today. All right, so beautiful first weekend of the summer. I mean, it was pushing 30 degrees in the backyard on Saturday. Really hot. And then compared to today, socked in again. There's a frost warning tonight. For folks that suffer from allergies, it must be a brutal start to allergy season. The heavy pollen count is just unmistakable. Just look at every surface, whether it be the road or your vehicle or what have you. A couple of people in my sphere who have the allergies are having a tough go of it so far. And then, you know, there's talk about air quality. There was an event up in Labrador that was canceled because of air quality. Montreal had the worst air quality of any city in the world yesterday. So some major concerns coming from the smoke associated with the wildfires anyway. And, of course, for the folks out in CBS, quite the show in the sky, the spectacle that is the snowbird. So interesting stuff on the go. Also this weekend on what was a pretty humid old Sunday morning to be running from Octagon Pond to Bannerman Park, the Telly 10. Great race. I think it was the 95th edition of the Telly 10. And Kate Baisley. That's three straight for Kate in the women's division. And her seventh overall, she had another blistering pace to finish in 54 55 Two minutes faster than she ran last year. She didn't have a goal, she said. She was just going to do the very best she can. Two minutes clipped off at that time is really extraordinary stuff. And a young fellow named Noah Dufresne, overall winner. He finished with a 53-40, so congratulations to all. Some 2,700 participated in the Tele 10 this go-around. Very cool tradition race. And there's some great stories that came out of the Tele 10. Whether it be a fellow named Joe Ryan, Randy's 50th Tele 10 over the weekend. He's also one of the winners of the Honorary Dr. John Williams Award. Talking about those folks who have sp- uh, spirited participation and inspire others to race. Dennis Flynn also won that prestigious award. It was his 18th Tele 10. And apparently there's a group of a family called the O'Tools. Remembering their patriarch, Ron O'Toole. He won the race three consecutive years beginning in 1923. They actually put together a family reunion surrounding the Tele 10, and a bunch of the family members took part in the race. So that's a pretty cool story. And I just want to say, bravo. I know they talked about it on the VOC Morning Show with Ben Murphy and Jerry Lynn Mackey about the Special Olympics. You know, whether it be the coaches and physicians that we had attending, representing the province and the country at the Special Olympic World Championships in Berlin. We talked to Andrew Hines, one of the torchbearers last week. That was a great conversation. And the athletes, man, they did us proud. Samantha Walsh comes home with a bronze in the long jump. Michael Budden, gold medal in the shot put. I actually watched that. That was absolutely brilliant. Daniel Moore is a powerlifter, won four medals. Melvin Hannums won a gold medal in golf. So 
They did us proud. They come home with the hardware. What an experience and what a representation on behalf of those four athletes and other support staff. Terrific. Okay. Now, you know, while last week went on and the clock continued to tick and the fate of the five men in the Titan submarine or the submersible became, it became very dire very quickly. I tried not to let my mind go to the fact that they were going to be lost. But I think in the back of most people's mind, this was the likely outcome. So I don't even know how. The most important part of the story is, of course, there's four people dead. Four men are dead. Then, you know, someone says to me, and I know how and why they meant it the way they said it, is, you know, the good news is that it was a catastrophic implosion versus the terror associated with waiting for the oxygen to run out and the, uh, the clock keeps ticking and the opportunity or the likelihood of being rescued becomes dimmer and dimmer and more dire. So we know the outcome here. There are some still some pretty big questions. You know, the province says they assume no responsibility. People are wondering, though, where responsibility lies. Like, curiously, you never hear these types of stories, and I know it's the issue regarding proximity of St. John's and the port of St. John's to the Titanic wreck site, which is absolutely in the international waters. But there's just so much to this. There's only 10 submersibles in the world that can go to the depth of 4,000 meters. The only one not tested repeatedly at those depths and accredited and approved is the Titan, which is now obviously disintegrated on the ocean floor. So the responsibility and the accountability piece is going to be part of the ongoing investigation. So between the TSB in this country and the MBI, the Marine, uh, the Marine Board in the United States, they're taking on whatever they call their highest level of investigation. So that'll take months, if not years, to come to any formal conclusions and or recommendations regarding criminal or civil proceedings. Who knows what's going to come of it. But they know there was a group that penned a letter to the company Ocean Gate a few years back saying that this was possibly the likely outcome for that vessel and whoever happened to be aboard at that moment in time and talk about whether or not their marketing and their information packages that they distributed were actually accurate. The people really know what they're getting themselves into. So, of course, as I said, the most important part of the story is that there's five people dead. But we have to just kind of maybe take a step back and look at some of this really high-risk adventure tourism. It's up to you to do what you want, right? And if you want to spend big money to go to space or go down to the depths of the Mariana Trench, that's up to you. You can take it on as you see fit. It's your money. But I heard the Americans say yesterday or the day before that the overall search, the cost associated with it, will be in the neighborhood of 50 million American. That's a lot of money. And of course, we owe to people who go out to take a chance, to take a risk, thrill-seeking, and potentially some of these exercises or initiatives are, in essence, a death wish. Should it be incumbent on folks taking this kind of stuff on to ensure that they have some sort of liability coverage or insurance? Because, you know... Whether you be trying to do a transatlantic crossing in what is basically no more than a bathtub or going down a submersible to the Titanic or going into space to try to enter orbit, what comes with it? You know, it's one thing in, in space if something happens, well, that's the end of the story. If something happens on the water, there is absolutely the want to protect, protect and preserve human life. But the price tag, I think, is something that it's not trying to be callous or dismissive of the fact that there's families grieving and five are lost. But it does come with more conversation about where some of the accountability and the requirement for accreditation or inspection or whatever the right, right word is there. Because you don't hear these stories beginning in Boston 
or in Halifax or in other places. It seems to be. Now, guess, as I said, the proximity issue to the wreck is absolutely one of the key components as to why the Port of St. John's is chosen. But there is certainly a lot to that if you want to take it on as much as it's a tragic story. And also a very complex story. We're happy to talk about it this morning, if you're so inclined. And sticking with search and rescue, fine for the federal liberals to adopt at a policy convention some sort of commitment to establish 24-7 search and rescue capacity at Five Wing Goose Bay because right now, other than land search and rescue and many of it on the volunteer front, capacity is negligible. So certainly need to move forward with that. And sticking with Labrador for a second, and predictably, this was always going to be the thoughts and the comments coming from Wabush Mayor Ron Barron. He's not wrong. They need a water bomber in that area. It's fine to have one stationed in Gander, but it's sometimes you're unable to fly. You know, to even get that water bomber from Gander to Wabush, we harken back to some of the fires that they've seen in past seasons. And, of course, if the province had ever thought that the full complement of water bombers was five, and now we all know the story, we only have four, and Ron Barron, maybe we'll see if we can miss uh, uh, Mayor Barron on the program this morning to talk about his absolutely justified thoughts that there should be a water bomber in that neck of the woods, given the geographical challenges in Labrador. Let's go. All right. So we all know that the province has had a long-term love-hate relationship and reliance on the oil business. Whether it be with jobs created through the oil business, whether it be the taxes from that base of the workers, whether it be corporate taxes, and of course, royalties. This year, the forecast is about a billion dollars in royalties, which has been compromised somewhat because the Terranova is not going back out. It certainly doesn't look like going back out this year. And then the industry's taken some serious knocks. So Equinor putting a pause on Beta Nord for who knows how long, even if that might be some public negotiations taking place before our very eyes. This one is surprising. And, you know, don't take it from me. Take it from industry veteran consultant Rob Strong. When BP, one of the industry giants, is halting their exploration work out of the Ephius well, look, the wording here is critically important. They're not talking about suspending operations. They're abandoning them. So when you spend it, it gives the thought that there may indeed be a return to get that rig back out to continue exploration. When they abandon it, it comes with a different set of circumstances. When you think about just, you know, how much Hibernia, for instance, has meant to the province. And late last year, it cleared 1 billion barrels in production. Then all of the industry rumbles and rumors, and yes, some careful evaluation done about what might be the recoverable oil out of that particular well that BP was going to further explore, maybe 5 billion barrels. So I don't think anybody has a real crystal ball about peak oil production in this country or peak oil consumption in the world. I don't. I don't think anybody does, really. But when people talk about transitioning and understanding what that looks like, it's happening before our very eyes. It just really, truly is. Now, I know there's going to be opportunities in whatever the hydrogen world will look like in this province and the global appetite for. There's going to be absolutely opportunities in the mining sector. And yes, for folks working in the oil business, of course, that's what you do. That's how you make a living. That's what supported junior family over these past years or decades. But what do you make of that? And the province, I would imagine, has to be pretty worried. You know, people continue to tell me that the province isn't in or reliant or doesn't want to produce oil, when in fact everything they have ever said is absolutely to the contrary. But those two particular stories in that industry, I think, give people reason for pause. And on that front. So it's remarkable 
depends on who you listen to or how the news media portrays the story of what the 1st of July means in this province. Oh, very quickly, before I get into anything else about the 1st of July, there's a local fella, his name is Stephen Clark, with phone calls and emails and contact with Apple, He's managed to get them to put on their Apple calendar app. So if you open up your calendar on your iPhone and there will be a little dot under a certain date, you click it, it'll tell you because it's one holiday or another, right? He's managed to get them to not only say it's Canada Day, but include it now on your Apple app will say Memorial Day in Newfoundland and Labrador on the 1st of July. Bravo, Stephen Clark. Excellent effort and a justifiable outcome. So Memorial Day will be right there on your Apple app. Okay, your calendar app. All right, moving on to what I was going to talk about. So the fact that the Atlantic premiers have joined forces to ask the federal government to put a pause on bringing the federal backstop carbon tax to the provinces is obvious. You know, I do think it furthers some people's thoughts that there may indeed be some opportunity for the possibility of a fall election, but Premier Fury has been pretty clear on this front. You know, he says that when Minister Stephen Gibo, Federal Minister of the Environment, says that anybody talking about a carbon tax or a pause or a delay is a climate denier, I mean, it's just, it's nonsense, right? What we need to focus in on, what does it realistically mean for your pocketbook? Because that's where I think a lot of people put their focus. Yes, we can talk about carbon emissions and carbon footprints and the transition inside clean fuel regulations and moving on to gas or to hydrogen or what have you. But ultimately, a lot of people, even if it's quietly, We'll be thinking, what does that mean to me in my pocketbook? For the last number of years, we've had a provincial scheme. And every dollar went into the provincial coffers. So it's a revenue stream loss for the province. Somewhere in the neighborhood of $113 million a year. Okay. We'll go from $0.11 cents on a liter of gasoline, for instance, to $0.14. Cents. The only difference there is, uh, which one would you rather have? $0.11 cents that you get none back? Or $0.14 cents where you get some back? for the additional three cents that you'll pay per liter. Now, yes, it absolutely comes with the cost. The quarterly rebates for a family of four will be in the neighborhood of $1,300. The big problem here is for the some 50,000 or close to it who heat their home with home heating fuel. By 2030, not on the 1st of July, there will be another 17 cents. So that's absolutely true. The federal carbon tax will be applied. When we've had this conversation over the years, looking at this possibility, whether it be the province has to figure out a way that for, you know, they're trying to do and trying to put some pots of money forward for people to move off onto another form of heating their home. It's easy enough if you got some money and take advantage of this rebate, but many inside the 49,000 simply do not, or they simply want to heat their home with uh, home heating fuels. So that's where the big crunch will be uh, for many people listening to this program and many people coming through a winter where, you know, the price to fill your tank was very dear to say the very least, so that's common. It doesn't look like there's any pause or delay or restructuring of that federal program coming to the province on the 1st of July. That's right around the corner, as you know. And when we talk about the pressures we're all facing, so we're going to get some inflation numbers this week and job numbers, GDP numbers, and all the rest. So in the last inflation numbers were a little uptick to 4.4%. Now there's a thought there might be another rate hike coming at the Bank of Canada. Look, it's easy enough to say that that's one of the tools available to them to try to control inflation, even though it's going to take 12 or 18 months for any rate hike adjustment to have that type of impact. And it's not necessarily slowing down retail sales either. The retail group uh, representing all the retailers in the country say revenue is right where it always is. 
But that's not because we're buying or selling as much as we did in years past, that the prices are higher across the board. It's starting to slow the pace at which the prices are increasing. But when we see the household debt numbers and the implications of any additional tax or whatever people would like to characterize, carbon tax or otherwise, and we don't even know what a clean fuel regulation impact will be on my pocketbook, which seems outlandish. I mean, if the federal government has created it, certainly they must have some earthly idea what it's going to mean, but they're having a hard time telling us what it does. Dave, how are we doing on the telephone on this Monday morning? Let's get her going. A couple of quick ones before we come back to speak with you. Whether it be on the federal front or on the provincial front, the scrutiny into COVID supports is mandatory. Some people suggest there should be some sort of public inquiry into everything regarding COVID, whether it be lockdowns, mandates, all the rest. Okay. The money went out the door is exorbitant. Now, plenty of Canadians, individuals, and Canadian businesses would have not seen the other end of the pandemic had it not been for some supports. But when the governments were quick to put the money out the door, maybe, maybe, just maybe, did not have the oversight in place to ensure that the money was going to people who were eligible for it and was going to be used as it was intended. The Auditor General in this province, Denise Hanrahan, has had a look at some COVID assistance and says, quite simply, uh, support for the tourism hospitality sector and assist small business trying to weather the pandemic storm from 2020 to 2021. Regarding the two COVID-19 programs, we found that these programs were not effectively managed or overseen, so says the Auditor General. Like every government department, since this level of scrutiny has taken place, they'll say quite simply that what would be a group taking hundreds of applications for government support, we're seeing tens of thousands of applications for government support, and consequently, people fell through the cracks and money went out the door where it should not have. There's a small sample size analyzed by the Auditor General, but like every other program, federally and provincially, there was money that went out the door that should not have. There is a difference in my mind with trying to claw back monies regarding the CERB. I mean, there are some folks, we can pretend we're going to claw it back from them, but it's absolutely the blood out of a turnip. We might indeed pay more for the bureaucracy than we even get back. We may indeed put make life much more difficult for folks who already have it a very rough go of it, trying to make ends meet. I wonder if there's ever going to be an appetite to look at the way the business got money and the way the business handled it. Some of it, uh, absolutely, you know, wasn't great to take on additional debt, but it kept the wolf away from the door, kept people employed. Some businesses absolutely did not use the programs they were intended, the way they were intended to be used. So if you want to ta- uh, take that on in any form, you know what to do. We're on Twitter. We're a VOCM open line. Follow us there. Email address is openlineofvocm.com. When we come back, let's have a rip-roar start. That means you're in the queue on the air to talk about whatever's on your mind. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's begin on the top of the board, line number one. Good morning, Elridge. You're on the air. Yes, uh, good morning, Patty. Good morning to you. Yeah, a long time since I've been uh, on open line. A bit nervous here. I think I think Bill Rowe, the moderator, quite <laughs> an old school racket. Yeah, that's uh, been a while, but welcome back to the show. Take your time. What's on your mind? Yeah, just I uh, just want to talk about our PM, uh, Justin Trudeau. Sure. And the mess he's making of the country. He, he got our, he got our country ruined. How so? We'll we'll never get out of debt no more. What a uh, trillion uh, trillion and a half dollars now we owe. Imagine how the, and and you and in your preamble you just mentioned that we only had four water bombers, and he went to Ukraine two weeks ago, one slap a half a billion. Imagine yeah. the water bombers and the pilots and the search and rescue that could put in Labrador. Yeah, the water bomber issue is strictly provincial. 
The yeah. federal government has no involvement in our water bomber fleet. But they got involvement in everything else. They can help out. And he put he put eight or ten billion in in in, in, a, in a car battery plant in in, in Ontario. That, that's an interesting conversation. There's going to be lots of that in the years to come, too, about how business gets subsidized in this, whatever people want to call it, the new world and mining and electric vehicle batteries, what have you. That one there, I think if we look at the Americans, you know, they haven't proven to really be our buddies on this one here with the Inflation Reduction Act. It's going to make it really tricky to keep investment in the country, even trickier to establish things like that VW plant in St. Thomas, Ontario. That's going to be hard conversation navigate i don't know oh, if it's yes, good it or bad is. but uh, and uh, the way the way is uh, the way is uh, expressing itself around the world uh he's a disgrace he's a disgrace uh, it's all at the g7 there a while ago uh he was sitting down with uh, the prime minister of italy telling her how to run our country uh, sitting, sitting down actually on, on national television and telling her how to run our country. And, 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 and stopped the, 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 the Prime Minister of China in a, in a corridor, and he got shrugged off there. It all started, I was watching there when, when Guy Lafleur died, Patty. Okay. Uh, he was to the funeral, uh, funeral. he and Ian Legault. And uh, Guy's wife got up and her son, and, and they walked out, and uh, they hugged Legault and shook his hand. And Trudeau put up his hand. She just shrugged him off and walked on. He's a complete... Yeah, I don't know. And uh, I tell you, he's going to meet his match now at West. He got Daniel Smith. He's not going to get his own way now. Well, what's Daniel Smith have to do with that uh, all the same? Because, I mean, she's a provincial premier. The Conservatives have cleaned the Liberals' clock in Alberta the last long time, certainly the last federal election. The predominant wins. He's 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 still going to get in clean, too. Yeah, but what does Daniel uh, Smith have to do with much? Even though I'm not so sure Daniel Smith is the politician I'd be pointing to as any sort of shining light. No, that's right. I, I understand that. And one other topic, uh, Patty, that okay. submersible sub that went down the other day. Yes, sir. I don't know. I don't know why the United States. I don't know why they got to spend fifty million dollars into an investigation into that. So all they got to do is play back Buddy's tape, the photo that designed it. She was uh, she was uh, she was caught with some kind of carbon outside. Well, no, the the issue there is that the fella Lockbridge was his name back in 2018 said, "We're only testing at 1,300 meters, not at 4,000." The repeated pressure cycle means that that carbon's going to start to separate, which absolutely seems like what happened. I don't know, nor am I an expert in it by any means, but no, yeah. he said that he this was likely. All to get to those players' tape, he admitted it that he had uh, many rules and that he broke it. So that carbon, so that's what hockey sticks are made out of. Yeah, there's different... You see the hockey players taking a slap shot, and I'll be geez, and their stick will explode. Yes, but that's not the same thing. So... It's not the same thing, but carbon is carbon. Yeah, no, carbon could be extraordinarily strong. I mean, it it just simply can. I mean, just look at... Yeah, but it wasn't meant to go down there. 
Okay, a couple of things. So the $50 million number is not for what an investigation will cost necessarily. The Americans said that the uh, the search itself costs somewhere in the neighborhood of $50 million. So it's not about another 50 to investigate. It's about the money they spent to disperse all of the flights and the machinery and the human resources. I mean, it was just a massive effort, which obviously comes with a whopping big price tag. Yeah, no, but uh, you you saw what happened with that implosion. You need you needn't look for nothing there. Well, I guess we'll leave that up right. to the the, yeah, the Americans. That, 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 that's right. And then you you brought up the Serb money. Yep. <laughs> that's another joke. What about that as a joke? That's another joke. Everybody got on the Serb. They couldn't get nobody to go to work. They couldn't get anybody to do anything. They were given $500 a week, so they all stayed home. Some people had no choice because the job that they had was gone. Not all of them, Patty. No, no. Like I've said many, many times, the amount of money that you went out that shouldn't that, have gone the out. Auditor, the Auditor General come up with $58 billion, and, and and they said that the government told her to cost more than that to recoup it. So what in the hell do you do? I I do think that sometimes we mischaracterize some of these issues. I think economic recovery. Now, there's more people working in Canada now than there was in 2019, so put that out there. If Can you imagine if there wasn't supports? Which I think there's two, two sides to this, right? And I don't mean there's a two-side story here. It's for businesses that were unable to open their doors, can you imagine? Oh, yes, I, can, I can understand that. By, uh, yes, I can understand that. But I, I, would, I, I, I drove to Tim Hortons, I, I'm not going to say which one, I drove to a Tim Hortons when I was 10 o'clock, I just got there. And they, I said, don't you be open now all night? No, she said, we called in some workers. She said, we, good, we couldn't get them to come in. They're home on Serb. Yeah, which has been gone for quite a long time now. Oh, yeah. But anyway, that's all. I won't take up too much of your time, uh, Patty. I'm a bit nervous here now and shooting the horse, but uh, yeah, can, it was nice talking to you. I might call you again sometime. You take care of yourself. Yeah. Okay. I just hope I just hope that the people in Newfoundland gets uh, got the guts to get rid of Justin Trudeau. His father was no good, and he's no good. <laughs> I appreciate Thanks, the talk. Patty. Okay. All the best. Bye bye. Yeah. The you know. I don't know who people are going to support here. It's quite obvious that the conservatives think that they've got some opportunity to win another seat or two in this province. I mean, the breakthrough last year with Clifford Small was a big deal for the conservatives that had been shut out repeatedly in the last number of federal elections. So with Mr. Poliev, he's been here at least three times, just off the top of my head. Now, that could be speaking to the fact that they think they have a big chance here, or that this type of repeated visiting the province will mean not really big pressure to come when the actual campaign takes place, because in the big scheme of things, I guess in the minority government, every seat counts, obviously, but with our seven, we seldom get huge focus here. Now, if we're going to, it very much looks like we're going right back down the road of a minority parliament, right? If you just look at the snapshot in time, which is the current polling, and who knows who's going to come out the eventual winner here. But, you know, what is it that, not only what is it about Trudeau, because he's been in place for, since 2015, and I do think the shine has absolutely rubbed off the prime minister. But in the world of who else to vote for, be curious as to who you think that is and why you think that is. Or we can talk about whatever you want to talk about right after this break. Don't go away.
Weekdays on VOCM, it's Open Line with your host, Patty Daly. Join the conversation each morning from 9 a.m. to noon on your VOCM. We get people talking. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number two. Roger, you're on the air. Good morning, sir. I was calling uh, about the water bomber. Uh, we don't have one here in Wabush or the Lab City area. Mm-hmm. And we got the hottest summer is going to be on the record. Matter of fact, we had the hottest summer so far. And we don't have much water in our lakes, and everything is just about all dried out already. And we don't usually see this till August month was in the water level. And I figures for them to fly in from St. John's, it's taken four or five hours. And before I start here, I can go out of control pretty fast. Uh, I think the, uh, I'm sorry? No, I was just going to say, look, the conditions are ripe for a dangerous fire season. We've seen it happening across the country already. You know, even if the closest one would be in Gander, for instance, I think people are rightfully pointing out that some days you simply cannot fly. You might not be able to make it from Gander to Wabush in the drop of a hat. It may indeed be some low ceiling or fog or whatever the case may be because that happens in this province, as people know. So if there was one in Wabush, you eliminate some of those hours of travel and the potential hours of delay. So again, the province quite clearly at some moment in time thought we needed a complement of five water bombers. Now that we only have four, that fifth one absolutely would have been in Wabush or lab somewhere in Labrador. So they acknowledge it quietly. And so where the answer lies, I don't know. But I think we're also expecting a call from Mayor Barron on that issue as well this morning. Well, I, I figured there should be one stuck in Wabush or Right, I figure there should be. At least you got a chance if we have fire breaks up. We're in the middle of the woods here, nowhere to go. She starts, I can't, they came close to my home there a few years back, just across the river. They had to build a line to stop her from coming over. Right, so it could move pretty fast. And this summer, I'll tell you, she's going to take off on real when you get one started there. Uh, hopefully, that's not going to be the case because, uh, you know, people can. Attribute to whatever they want to attribute to, but the wildfire season in other parts of the country is really quite something. Have you experienced some poor air quality as a result of the Quebec fires in your area? Uh, we spent around about two or three days here. Couldn't go out by the door. Yeah. You, you had to cut away, uh, get a knife and cut your way through the smoke to get through the other side. Yeah, I've seen some <laughs> pictures. Pretty hazy stuff. It was bad. Yeah. Now, talking about bad stuff, we got uh, I live next to the Tillings Line area. And they got everything destroyed out there since the new crowd opened up the mine in here. They flooded would tell wasteland that we worked so hard when I worked in there to fix it. And uh, it's a joke what they're doing out there now to stop the dust. They got a water truck out there trying to water an area, probably uh, 24 acres, not acres, acres of land with a water truck. Spraying a bit of water. So, Roger, you said when you were working to try to deal with the problem, what what's changed? Well, when we were out there, we had uh, I worked out there and we put all grass down and done the, the ground and covered up the sand and had the irrigation with water going through. And now they took that and they uh, dumped all their tellings lines in the area that we done or most of it, and now. You get a bit of wind and dry weather. You can't, I live, say, probably 400 feet from the water supply. You can't even see the water supply down there at times with dust coming from it. Right? And you sit here on my bridge and look out, and they're going back and forth with a, a water truck spraying a bit of water over the Cummings line pipes. 
that it's an awful joke to me, I tell you the truth. There's no way you're going to put dust down with a water truck spraying a little bit of water when you got a place uh, probably almost the size as Water Street uh, in St. John's, you know, like acres up the land. But... Uh, but uh, that's just a company, I guess. Yeah, I mean, we've been talking about the dust issue uh, in Wabush for a very long time. I remember back when Colin Vardy was the mayor of Wabush, and he'd call this program fairly frequently, talk about a variety of issues, including the dust, the brown dust that can be as high as a couple hundred feet in the air and right to the ground itself. And some of the pictures that I've seen in the past, I can't imagine even living in the area, let alone the effort to try to control it. So... Is it only you? Is it only water trucks that are utilized to try to control the dust, or is there anything else being put on the roads? Oh, you don't need nothing on the road. It's not the road, really. You might have a bit of dust on the road. It's the land behind it where they're dumping their waste. Oh, okay. Me- meanwhile, now we had a, we can you can do that with the irrigation system to do it, but I guess they don't want to spend the money doing it because it costs us a lot of money to do it. And they did do it for years, and we had a. We've done a lot out there, Trina years, like people before me that worked there, and I worked out at it, and other people. Then she closed down, and when they started up again, they started dumping where we dumped, dumping on what we had fixed. So and they tore, tore down a mountain there, mining a mountain in, in, in the mines area, and you get the wind right away, you don't have the mountain there anymore, that town be covered in dust. You know, there's a way to go about doing this. It's only simple if you might have put a few dollars in and do it. Uh, and, Roger, just so I'm understanding, are you saying that there was ever an irrigation system in place? Uh, we had uh, one out on Cummings Line that we uh, had sprinklers there, and we uh, grew grass out there and trees and everything, but growing it, right? We had that out there, and then they started up the mine again, and when they started up the mine again, they didn't bother to deal with that anymore. They just took all their waste and dumped it in that area and and turned it back into a desert again out there. You've got tons and tons of waste pouring there every day. I appreciate you making time for the show this morning, Roger. We'll do some follow-up with the mayor. I think he's going to call sometime in the next hour. I've known Mayor Barony will do his best to try to look after this. We'll see what he's got to say. Meanwhile, can I just say one more thing? Sure you can. Uh, like I heard a gentleman saying, true, as he makes a mess like his father did. His father made a mess of the place. He turned everything in mystery, cost us a fortune. And that's how he works. And true is working the same thing. Anybody got any sense about anything different or whatever. Thank you, sir. Appreciate the call, Roger. Take Good care. Work. All right. Bye-bye. Uh, oops, that was maybe a little quick. Sorry about that. Let's go to line number one. Tommy, you're on the air. Morning, Patty. Morning to you. Uh, I wonder, did you find out anything about uh, about making uh, hydrogen from the water? Did you, uh, you find out what happens to the water? Yeah, to, nothing happens. Uh, basically, when you separate the H2O, you're left with the hydrogen and nothing else, some vapor. Yes, and the water water's gone, right? Destroyed? Yep. So how can, how can the leaders of any country go around the world and promote a project that would destroy water the only thing you know that supports any kind of life or even puts out or even for put out a, a fire uh, uh, like talking about water bombers no good to be a bit of water bombers if uh, there's no water to put well, in cr- creating energy regardless of the source comes with a consequence right and it really doesn't matter there are some energy uh energies that are more 
viable or environmentally sound than others, but every single form of creating energy, whether it be even materials that go into a uh, wind turbine, materials that go into a solar panel, or materials that go into an electric vehicle battery, or hydro, or oil, or natural gas, or anything under the sun comes with some sort of implication. So this water source, if we're t- simply talking about World Energy GH2, it's a yes. commercial water reservoir that's all long been used for nothing but commercial utilization and that would be the same thing as this process here for hydrogen you know i think there's a big future in that industry some people uh, send me the global appetite numbers fairly frequently and it's growing and it's growing quickly so getting in on it is smart now knowing exactly what we're getting ourselves into will be important there will be federal monies involved in the clean tech manufacturing no direct provincial funding will be uh, uh, utilized by these companies but there's an opportunity there and their business model is kind of their problem. Not really mine. Look, there is a cost for creating the hydrogen. The green in particular was pretty expensive stuff. Yes, there's a cost with uh, transportation. Yes, there's a energy loss trying to get it to market in Germany, but it looks like we're going. If you, you don't even need to read between the lines, the province seems to be absolutely into the hydrogen business, so I'm anticipating in the next couple of weeks we'll hear which companies are moving ahead, and I've got to believe that's also including uh, John Risley's group out in port port I can't see. I can't see them going ahead. The people, the people that are hoping up their their brains and uh, and uh, letting uh, any government or any prime minister, they Trudeau, or anybody uh, support a project that destroy that water, the only thing that creates life on the planet here. And once water is destroyed, is destroyed. The water is gone forever. It's not come back. Yeah, but I can't of course, anybody, the... anybody's supporting. All right, but the prime minister Sorry. won't have a decision. Won't have an opportunity. Well, I don't know what kind of influence he has on up or down here, but it looks like the province is really quite enthused about hydrogen. And like I said, I think you're going to see some of these projects proceed. He came, he's the one who came here with the, the Chancellor of Germany and the Steamboat to promote this project. He should. It's time for somebody to talk, some scientists to talk, talk to him or something, put some sense in his head. I don't Once think he destroys the, I, water, it's gone. I understand that point. I don't think there's any political party opposed to this type of energy. Certainly, I haven't heard any of them say that they are. Nobody got nobody because the people don't know us. The people don't realize what's happened to the water. They, got, they can't because oh, how could anybody support the only thing that supports life? Destroy it. Right, I heard that part, Tommy. Um, well, okay, but it's it. Well, I think you're going to hear some news in the next week or two, and I'll be shocked if there isn't a couple of projects moving forward to the next stage, whatever the next stage looks oh, like. Guaranteed. You know, I could see that too, but it don't make sense. I appreciate the time. Anything else you want to say this morning, Tommy? No, no, that's fine. uh, Thank you for your time. My pleasure. All the best. Right, bye-bye. Yeah, there will be opponents, and you know, again, I don't know which group has accurate numbers in hand, whether it be World Energy GH2 talking about the numbers of people in support of the project and the so-called social license, whether it be the organization that is really vehemently opposed to the project, for a variety of reasons. I think a number one for many of them will be the blight on the landscape with these massive wind turbines. Like if you've ever driven uh, through the southern shore and seen the wind turbines there, these big ones that they're talking about on port port Peninsula, whether it be the hub in Botwood and all the rest, we're talking about enormous wind turbines. So I think that's been the crux of their issue. Add to it the uh, the water concern. Uh, what's the, was it Midland? I can't remember the town now where they say the water's been compromised. But of course, on that front, if we're going to really figure out exactly what happened and why it happened, 
let's bring in folks who actually understand the science and the remedies available. Because at this moment, we're just kind of pointing fingers around. People are throwing around guesses as to what happened and or shrugging any responsibility for what happened. So, you know, I think there's more can be done there, but certainly there is going to be some news in the very near future, maybe this week, next week, regarding who's moving forward, but you got to think someone is because the province, they're talking like they're into it. Uh, let's go ahead and take that break. When we come back, we will indeed be joined by the mayor of Wabush. That's Ron Barron right after this. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number three. Say good morning to the mayor of the town of Wabush. That's Ron Barron. Mayor Barron, you're on the air. Hi, good morning, Patty. Welcome back to the program, sir. No, thank you. So we've been talking, we had a call from a fellow who lives in your town in Wabush. Uh, Roger, talk about the lack of a water bomber in the area. I know you've broached this with the province. What do they have to say? Because as I've mentioned to Roger, if we needed a fleet of five, five years ago, we still need it today. So what, how's the conversation going? Well, I'm hoping to have that conversation uh, tomorrow with some officials in Goose Bay. Uh, you know, I've been beating this to death now since they took the plane out of here. Uh, it's been gone now close on, I guess, four or five years. Uh, initially, when they took it out of here, it was only because they were doing work on the Wabash Airport here and that it would come back uh, once the work was completed. I was told at that time that wouldn't be the case, and sure enough, those words uh, came true. Uh, so since then, I've been uh, asking, you know, why isn't that plane here on the ground? We, we see the need for that plane here. We've, you know, in 2013, 20, uh, 1992, uh, you know, numerous fires over the years, uh, that plane was stationed here in Labrador West. So, uh, you know, with everything that's happening in our world today, supposedly with climate change and everything, uh, with the fires you see right across Canada, it only stands to reason much to plan uh, for moving forward. One time we used to have seven cans of water bombers in the province, and when they got rid of those, they went down to five of the 215s. And one of them, uh, since the mid-'80s, was stationed in Lab West in Wabush. And we'd like to see that plane back on the ground here, particularly because of the history of what we've had here. Uh, heaven forbid we have a, a major fire, especially here the last few uh, weeks. We've had some very good weather here, uh, but that also causes a, an issue, another problem with uh, potential fires. And for a plane to come out of Goose Bay where, that, where they're stationed now, uh, not acceptable. It's an hour and a half, best case scenario for that pl- uh, plane to come over here. And a lot can happen in an hour and a half. You look at what happened in Fort McMurray uh, a number of years ago within an hour that fire was out of control so it's a major concern for me and a lot of people here in Labrador West and especially you know I guess a lot of fears were heightened here recently with all the smoke in the area from the fires in Quebec Uh, heaven forbid we have something like that happen here in, in around our towns questions for people living in other parts of the province where there is a water bomber close by is to shift resources to Wabush means that there's another part will be left without their water bomber. How do you square that circle? Because there's going to be some give and take here and geographical uh, uh, issues that have to be considered. So what do you say to someone, say, for instance, in Gander, saying, wait now, how come we don't get a water bomber but you do? And I, I know what the argument that you're making, but what do you say to those folks who say, we're just shuffling the deck, uh, the deck chairs around? Well, well they, like I said, that plane sat on the ground here for 30-plus years. Uh, so they they shuffled the deck and took it away from here. Uh, you know, this is a part of the province that contributes greatly to the economy of this province. And heaven forbid, well, we just seen what happened to forest fires 
uh, in Quebec where they took out the communication lines on the railway and everything shut down here for a couple of weeks. Imagine if that was even more catastrophic and we shut down for months. You know, that hurts the province too. So uh, to say that we shuffled the, shuffle the planes around, well, I'm not asking them to take it away. I'm just asking them to put it back. You know, what we had. There was a plane on the ground here for, like I said, 30-plus years. There must have been a reason why they had it here. And what's the reason they took it out? Absolutely. It, and, you know, it's... cost-cutting measures. You know, I'll just throw this at you, Patty. For that plane to leave Goose Bay, it cost 3500 bucks for it to fly over here. Then it cost $3,500 to go back. We had that plane come in here a couple of times last year, twice in a day. Because uh, uh, it was because they shut that loud note up over in Lab, Lab West again because he was barking about the plane. Twice one day that plane came over from Goose Bay and went back. $15,000. Think about it. You know, when that plane could be sitting on the ground here. And uh, I hope the plane never takes off once because we never have a fire. But it'd be nice to have that uh, plan in place that if anything ever did happen here that we're prepared, and we're not prepared here in Labrador West right now. I mean, even when the province talks about the reasons or rationale as to why there wasn't immediate attention given to that fifth water bomber that was damaged, whether it be to fix it or get a new one or whatever the case may be, as opposed to here we are almost five years later talking about the exact same lack of one in our water bomber fleet. Uh, before we run out of time, uh, Mayor Barron, Roger also was concerned about dust levels in and around the community. I've seen pictures over the years as far back as talking to Mayor Vardy about the dust. He says that it's simply a lack of attention or willingness to invest by the company or anybody else responsible for controlling dust, not only on the roads, but also in the lands surrounding the roads where they're doing the dumping. Yeah, and and, and we've been talking to uh, the mine officials here in, uh, in Decorah. Uh, you know, like I said, the weather that we're having uh, is causing a lot of issues, not just with uh, fires. We have a lot of dust in the air with tailings lines and even in the mine itself. And uh, they just had uh, came out with some uh, released there a little while ago, I believe last week, talking about uh, some of the dust mitigation that they are going to be doing in the mine and on the tailings line. And this is something that has to on go all summer long, every year. And every year so far, they've been uh, you know investing money in to try to curtail the, the dust lift off. Uh, it's just uh, I'd like to have the the quick answer for them what they can do. But there's many things that uh, they had to continue doing. You know, that's the vegetation uh, plan that they have growing on the tailing line and some other uh, different measures that they are looking at implementing. It's some kind of a, a new uh, chemical or something that's environmentally friendly that when it's uh, put onto the surface, it turns hard and dust won't lift off. So they're looking at stuff like that. There's all kinds of things. They're, they're communicating with the town what they're doing, but, you know, if you, if you see what happens in the area, uh, especially like this lately with all the nice weather and the high winds, we get lift off it. And it's a mining town, and I'm not trying to excuse that or anything like that. We're always talking to them saying, listen, this is not acceptable. Uh, what are you going to do? And, and I know that they are they are trying, but they'll have to do more, I guess, to make sure that they... Uh, to alleviate any uh, lift off of any dust. So with the dusty conditions, the dry conditions, the wind or what have you, what is the fire risk today in your neighborhood? It's an extreme here. And it's been like that, uh, well, it went back to moderate because we did have a little sprinkle of rain the other day. Uh, but we're 
extreme. Uh, you know, we've even taken it upon ourselves as communities here to put a fire ban in without the forestry uh, uh, having to put one in. We, we just don't want to take the chance that something could happen here. We've seen the devastation here uh, in 2013 when we had 60-something cabins in the area last. Uh, and that affected me, too. You know, I've been around where I had my cabin. I lost my uh, shade. I lost all that stuff. It burned right around me. And uh, I don't want to see a repeat of that here. And heaven forbid it comes to the town, you know, and, and we lose homes like you see in Nova Scotia, even up in Alberta that time. Uh, I, I wouldn't want to see that. And, you know, it's, it's just frustrating that there was a need for this plane to be on the ground here. And, and why isn't it here? And, and, and you talk about planning. I mean, we're even short crews now for manning those planes, yeah. the planes that we do have. Mm-hmm. So what what was, what was fell down here for that to happen? So if, if we're going to be planning for the future, because that's all I'm hearing, about environmental change and climate change, uh, there got to be a plan in place for that, because certainly we're going to have a lot more fires. I hope we never have one, but what's the plan? Currently, not meeting the needs, especially in this part of the province in the big land. Having one water bomber station there or two of them sitting on the ground in Goose Bay don't make sense. And add to that, you know, even the uh, on the ground wildfire, forest fire fighters, there was a recent physical exam. We're trying to get the numbers here a physical fitness exam where apparently a significant number failed and consequently aren't going to even be available to fight fires. We're trying to figure out exactly what that number is, what percentage of the crew that failed that test because add that to the complication because, you know, it's one thing to have support in the air, quite another on the ground. So no one can seem to give us uh, detailed or accurate or concrete numbers there but we're trying to figure it out and that, and that's something else I mean we I, my understanding we used to have a crew of seven people here one time for forestry and we have three now you know so even that number is dwindled down uh, so what happens when a couple of these guys are gone on vacation or whatever who, who we got watching <laughs> watching the shop you know mm-hmm. there's got to be a, a better plan in place than what I see happening and uh you know, and I've brought this to many premiers' attention since this happened. You know, when they took the plane out there, or a couple of them, and uh, but it's just falling on deaf ears. And heaven forbid anything happens here, Patty, where we have a major fire that causes any uh, uh, devastation to our community. Understood. And, Before oh, we run out of time, get to the news. So, on the upside, you know, you say Wabush is a mining town. Of course, it is. The opportunities in that sector are enormous in this province. What kind of conversations do you have? Not only the province, but maybe companies and some of the junior companies that are in and around your community talking about whether it be inside of the supply chain for critical minerals, whatever the case may be. There must be some serious optimism surrounding mining opportunities where you live. Sure it is. Uh, but one thing that I keep stressing to them is that, uh, you know, if you're going to come here, well, what's the plan for housing your workers? You know, we don't want to see just fly in, fly out with operation. That's that's basically what we're turning into here in Labrador West now, which is which is terrible. It don't benefit our communities. So if, you, if you're going to be coming and developing more mines in this area, and the government got to get on board with this too, is what's the plan for housing? Because we have a housing shortage here in Labrador West that's unbelievable. You know, we got nothing here for our seniors. We could free up hundreds of homes here. Uh, Tomorrow, if we had it built here with seniors uh, assisted 
living or, or cottages or something like that, we could free up hundreds of homes. I guarantee you that. If, and that's the major thing that's going to be a downfall for any growth in this area or even the province now, if you want to think about it that way, because of lack of housing here for everybody. I've long wondered why part of the benefits agreements with the mining companies wasn't some money that went directly to housing, earmarked specifically for housing, whether it be apartment building or affordable housing or whatever people think is appropriate for the area. But I, of course, I have no say in the matter, but if I was helping to negotiate that contract, some of those royalties would be associated with uh, housing directly. Uh, I appreciate the time this morning, Mayor Barron. Anything else quick before I go to the news? No, just thank you for your time this morning. It was just uh, nice to get their concerns to the powers that be, and hopefully they will listen. Appreciate the call. Stay in touch. Thank you. You're welcome. Bye-bye. That's Ron Barron. He's the mayor of the town of Wabush. Tracy's in the queue for after the news, talk about a water quality issue. And then Wayne wants to talk about the big question. What are we giving giving away, and what are we getting if any of these hydrogen projects proceed? Don't go away. Got plans for midnight? Bring your VOCM along with the best soundtrack for every night, anywhere. The VOCM All Night Show. Midnight on your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number two. Wayne, you're on the air. Hello, Patty. Good day. Can you hear me there? I can hear you there. All right. Thank you uh, for taking me call. Uh, yeah, my name's Wayne. I got a few things to talk about. I was uh, listening to Buddy talking about the hydrogen energy yep. right? that they're planning on doing. <laughs> Uh, my my question is, I'm 34 years old, right? You know, I moved back to Newfoundland and all this kind of stuff. But anyway, uh, let me gather my thoughts. Uh, the hydrogen energy, all right, so Newfoundland, we went from fishing, right? And then we went to oil. Then we went to wind. Then we went to water, right? When When is Newfoundland going to gain anything off it? Or is it just the foreign investors that's that's uh, making any profit off it, you know what I mean? Because it's like Newfoundland always got to change, right, you know, for somebody else's uh, uh, the benefit, I guess, you know what I mean? And we're not getting no benefit from it ourselves, you know? Well, we got the oil, we got okay. the water, we got this, we got that. But yeah. you know what I'm saying? I think so. So, I mean, whether or not we've uh, benefited to the extent we should have, whether it be in oil or the fishery, and I think there's good conversation to be had in both, this one here, the vast majority of the monies generated will go to the companies. There's no doubt about it. There is a crown land lease fee. The annual charge, I think, is 3.5% of uh, reserve land, 7% of leased land. There's a wind electricity tax that is... Is part of it, $4,000 a megawatt. There's a water use fee and a water royalty. It's not huge, though. If you talk about the water use fee, I think the number is 500 bucks per 1,000 cubic meters of water that's used, 50 bucks per 1,000 cubic meters of water that is licensed but not used. So jobs, taxes, and those couple of royalties and lease fees and electricity tax, that's the full complement of what's coming to the province if and when these projects get off the ground. Okay, yeah, yeah, because I'm there's just uh, more more of a concern about the 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 province in general, I guess you know what I mean, because we can stand up for everything else, you know what I mean, but fighting for our own province, you know, we can't say fight for our own people because there's so many different cultures and so many different uh, nationalities here now, you know what I mean, but for the provinces in as in one, right, as a as a one nation, as a one people, you know, we 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 got our we got our priorities mixed up, you know what I mean, we're 
we're we're marching and we're standing up for things that's that's irrelevant for our daily life. You know what I mean? And well, uh, that's that's just the point I wanted to get across too, as well. I guess. Yeah, I'm not so sure if I completely understand that point. I mean, for regardless of who you are, where you're from, we all have some pretty basic overlapping needs and wants, don't we? People want to have a place to live. People want to have a job. People want to have access to health care. Very basic things that it really doesn't matter who you are. So if we fight the good fight on the fundamental fronts, I think everyone gets swept up in that if it's a positive outcome. Same thing, I suppose, when we don't fight forcefully enough or loudly enough and we get left behind or we don't maximize benefits because of where we are and who we are, like whether it be with oil and or fish and or the deep water ports and the water and the land and the proximity to hydrogen markets. Yeah, we got to make sure we get every single thing out of it we can, 100%. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And I feel I feel everybody's frustration would be, well, I'm speaking for myself here now, but like where there's so much money being passed around and thrown around, you know what I mean? And then there's somebody hurting for paying rent or paying their car off or paying this off or that off, you know, and here's the numbers of millions and billions, right? Donald Trump, the billions and billions and billions, right? You know what I'm saying? But like when and, and as you're saying, you hear Buddy talking about the Serb earlier, you know, and, and all these kind of not going back to work because of five hundred dollars. Right, Newfoundland are giving us they're they're giving us the fish, right? They don't wanna teach us how to fish, you know what I mean, and get our own. Right, you know, and that's that's a lot of that's a lot of people's well, I can't say a lot of people because I'm speaking for myself, but you know that's that's my that's my issue too, you know what I mean? That there's so much money being passed around and there's so little being being offered, sort of say, in, in the means of right, here, go do it, I guess, you know what I mean? But but, yeah, that, that's a personal problem, too, I guess, right? We've got opportunities here. I know there's a lot of doom and gloom and a lot of people down in the mouth, but there still are big opportunities here in this province. There just is. You know, maybe I'm a cockeyed optimist, but I'm not one to shrug my shoulders and say, well, it's all, all is lost. Well, we might as well fold up. No, Last one, right. I'll turn off the lights. I don't think like that. I don't think <laughs> it's helping us at all when people talk like that. But so be it. Yeah. Uh, Wayne, anything else you want to say while we got you? Uh, no, thanks for uh, taking me call, Patty. It's my first time calling, and uh, next time I call, they'll probably have me line, me ducks in line. Whenever you're ready, give us a shout. Uh, awesome. Thanks for taking me call. Have a good pleasure. day. Take care. Bye-bye. You too. Bye. Uh, you know, maximize what we get. Look, you know, it's funny. I don't know if it's funny, but it's a thing that there's a curious problem that is being discussed, whether it be at TradesNL or otherwise, that let's just say... A bunch of these things come to pass at the same time, whether it be mine expansions and floor spire reopening and the wind hydrogen to ammonia projects get off the ground. It's pretty clear we don't even have enough people to work on those jobs, which brings upon a funny thought that if anyone thinks that the private companies are going to be willing to negotiate with each other to stagger the projects, that one will go before the other, of course they're not going to agree to that. So how does the government even navigate those tricky waters? Is it delay approval so that there is said stagger automatically involved? Will that keep the companies who do indeed have some form of approval in place interested and stay here and just sit on their money until it's quote-unquote their turn? highly unlikely so there will be trades jobs if it all comes to pass but who's going to be performing those trades jobs <laughs> i don't think we really know uh let's go to line number one good morning tracy you're on the air hi tracy line number one hi there um yeah hi hi patty daily um yes thank you for um taking my call today um uh, it's my first time being ever on the air so 
I'm glad to talk to you. Um, yeah, I have um, Paradise. Um, um, I sent a, a complaint to Paradise um, about the on water um, water problem, a drainage water problem since October 2021. Um, and I live on Three Island Pond. Um, and I live at the um, uh, the oldest house on Topsail Pond. Um, a little history about Topsail Pond. Um, my grandma bought this land. She worked in a jewelry store down in St. John's. I wish I could remember the jewelry store, but she uh, owned the land all the way to the bridge. Um, I call it the frog pond at one time, and they slowly sold, you know, a little piece of land um, to the neighbors, you know, and um, and so it is kind of weird that I live on Three Island Pond. I'm familiar with I'm it. I'm overlooking Topsail Pond. And the reason why is because when my grandma bought the land, it, she used to be right on Topsail Pond, but they moved the road to behind the property. And... Um, uh, well, the road used to be behind the property, I'm sorry. And then um, the railroad came in, and so the railroad wanted to be behind the property, and so the road ended up being in the front. And then they changed this road to Three Island Pond. Um, so anyway, um, what I wanted to talk to you about is that um, – my family has owned this um, property um, for 88 years, um, uh, or longer, actually, longer than that. But the house was built, and it's 88 years old, and it's the oldest house on the pond. And uh, we've never had drainage problems like we have right now. Um, and it's because of, it's kind of, I think it's a, a two uh, two problems. It's the developer above um, that has built property uh, uh, housing on Sergeant Lucas Drive. And um, when I made the complaint, they um, the the officials that came out right away the day that I um, made the complaint, I sent the letter because they encouraged me to make a complaint and they said that they will do some um, paperwork too but they told me that that the developer may build more housing directly behind sergeant lucas drive which means that that is parallel to sergeant lucas drive which would even make this problem even worse because then there's a whole nother line of housing behind parallel to Sergeant Lucas Drive and parallel to Three Island Pond Road. Okay, but before we go any further, um, what exactly is the problem? Okay, well, I I have um, running water coming down from the the east side to the west side the west side is where topsail pond is and it's coming down um over my hill it's hitting the northeast side of my house and it's running down my lawn and so the lawn is just really boggy there's parts of the lawn that i cannot 
um, mow because my mower is like waterlogged trying to mow it. So this is an issue that the runoff... I have a a small river (laughs) um, draining on my property because of this. So if Uh, I'm understanding this, the issue of runoff is worsened now because the deforestation, which does a lot to control the water, has been at the extent it is because of clearing land for homes, right? Yes. Okay. And also... They had, um, there, there's um, a trail that used to, that, that's still there, but the rock is gone, Tomahawk Rock. I don't know, I don't know if you know the area, but that, um, that has been a long time place for people to go up to look um, at the view from uh, Three Island Pond to Topsail Pond all the way to the ocean. And many um, locals would go up there um, to sit up on the rock called Tomahawk, um, and it was a huge rock. And I got here on June 4th, and by the time I looked, um, uh, because I could hear pinging, I could hear bing, 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 and by the time I looked, it was completely gone, the rock. And so there's that disforestation of this beautiful area where it was a wooden trail all the way up and lots of trees around this beautiful rock to sit on to view and it's gone now it is basically um like two inch gravel piles and i took the um the uh, the people that came to my house on June 9th there also. And we covered the whole terrain of Tomahawk Rock to Sergeant Lucas Drive. They showed me where there's an inlet of, um, I want to, there's like an area where they have um, a place where a road is planned to go behind Sergeant Lucas Road off of Spracklin Drive. Okay, and uh, we walked along that gravel road. It's no housing yet, but that area. And then we walked down from the east side to the south side on a piece of property. I don't know who owns it, but there was literally a river, a huge river. um, And they took pictures of this river. They even said... And I can't name names, but they even said that this is um, a much faster current than it was before when they took pictures. And that went is going straight down to my neighbors. Um, if you look at at my house to the right of me, um, and he has um, really got a huge water problem. Um, that he's not too happy with either. But there, I've, I've heard from this, the, the paradise that day that there are several people that are neighbors, and they didn't name names, that are um, have complained that, you know, there's numerous complaints that uh, people have complained. And I am – and also they – um, I, you know, I love the bike trail that used to be the railroad. There used to be like four inch rock on the railroad. Um, as a biker myself, um, riding that was very hard 
Um, so I'm very happy about the pea gravel, but I think that also they tamped down on, the, you know, to make the pea gravel, they widened the trail. That also has caused more water drainage problems. The people from the city that came to my house that day, they said that at, because the railroad used to be there, the, they had huge boulders. There's one um, at the corner of my property that was one of the huge boulders that, that you know, they didn't need, I guess. It's been there forever. Okay. And it's like three feet by you know, four feet and they put them in the ground because, you know, then they put the railroad ties. And so they wanted it, you know, the weight for the train railroad track. Okay. Before we go too far down that way, we can follow up with the town of paradise, but when we talk about deforestation and putting in these uh, subdivisions and whatnot, I just look right out my studio window at Kemal Terrace. The way that that entire hill was cleared of all the trees and bogs Mm -hmm. means that the downstream at the bottom of that hill, we have got flow issues Mm -hmm. because when we don't allow the bogs to remain Mm -hmm. and we take away too much of the Mm -hmm. force, we absolutely complicate the world of water drainage the bogs there's no better solution to halting or stopping or slowing water than the bogs and the wetland areas mm-hmm. and of course the surrounding mm-hmm. forest because you know it's one thing to advance and to build a subdivision if that creates a problem down the hill then maybe some consideration has to be given i'll follow up with the town of paradise tracy but i appreciate your call this morning off to the break i go daily i really appreciate your your help on this matter no problem thanks for the call Okay. All right. All right. Thank Bye-bye. you for having me. You're okay. welcome. Bye-bye now. Bye-bye. All right. Uh, let's go ahead and take a break. Uh, last time we spoke with author Mike Heffernan was about his national bestseller, Rig, of course, recounting the Ocean Ranger disaster in the aftermath. He's got a new book out that hits me right in the feels. It's right in my crosshairs. It's called Let It All Falls, the underground music and the culture of rebellion in Newfoundland, 1977 to 1995. Mike Heffernan, right after this. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Well, Mike Heffernan's most recent book is called Let It All Fall, the underground music and culture of rebellion in Newfoundland from 77 to 95. And Mike joins us on line number three. Good morning, Mike. You're on the air. How you doing, Patty? Excellent today, man. How about you? Oh, I'm doing grand. Talking to you can't be better. Listen, I, I tell you what, when I heard that this book was coming out, we exchanged a couple of notes. You thankfully sent me a copy, which I remember to bring into the studio this morning, thankfully, because I'm not that good early in the morning. But just when I flip it open, immediately the names that jump out, who you know, were just part of my growing up, whether it be Mike O'Brien and Donald Ellis, Wallace Hammond, Barry Andrews, Mike Fisher, Johnny Fisher, up and down the line, Charlie Tomlinson. It's really something else. How long did it take you to conduct the interviews before you put it together inside the covers of this book? Um, well, about a decade. My last book was, uh, yeah, I know, right? <laughs> My last book was uh, The Other Side Midnight Taxi Cab Stories, and it was in 2012. And uh, when I finished that, I, I started this book. And originally, I wanted to create, profi- similar to Rig, um, profiles of individual people and and life stories. But it quickly evolved into a much broader and in-depth study of uh, underground music and, as the title reflects underground culture and rebellion in Newfoundland. And whether it be the advent of punk or what have you, because music, when you stand back and think about it, has been a tool of protest forever. Many genres have been utilized on that front. Even some of the most gentle voices in folk music had a distinct protest associated with it. Rock and roll, hip-hop. But punk is really a bit of a standalone on that front. So whether it be fighting back against the Iron Lady in London with some underground punk in England, or the so-called trickle-down butchery of the Ronald Reagan era in the United States, and it made its way 
way to our shores. And we really contributed on that front. Exactly. That's a a very pointed comparison because I make that uh, a lot. Uh, Because punk and underground culture is a reaction to um, conservative politics and austerity. And as you know, well, the year punk broke was 1991 with the release of uh, Nirvana Nevermind. And of course, there was a worldwide revolution. But in the context of Newfoundland, of course, you know, the elephant in the room is the Cod Moratorium. Mm -hmm. And that happened at the exact same time. So one thing your listeners probably aren't aware of is that there was a a rich burgeoning uh, peace movement that had been um, existing in St. John's for decades. And um, I'm sure you remember the Peace Accord, which was a youth peace and music festival, which happened in Bannerman Park for uh, almost 20 years. And um, that came out of a group called Plowshares, and Plowshares was an international organization run by Daniel Berrigan, and he was, became famous because he started the, uh, burning draft cards. He was the one, his organization started that, and then he was famous also for uh, sneaking into an ICBM silo and putting a peace symbol over a nuclear warhead. <laughs> so uh, I think of Walter Davis and the influence he had on a lot of young people, um, but in terms of um, the centerpiece of the book um, is the Fleming Street Massacre. Now, that's a euphemistic term. No one was killed. But um, there's this uh, term that cultural historians and, and journalists use. It's called the zero hour. So it's that kind of lightning rod moment that galvanizes a group of people to start a scene. And what was really unique about St. John's is that you had um, the nexus of uh, both music and um, a peace movement happening. So as Jeff, my friend Jeff Young husband mentioned, he was like, you know, the women led led the protests and activism. We just provided the soundtrack. But uh, the Fleming Street Massacre happened um, at 15 Fleming Street, the home of Robbie Thomas. And um, there was a, uh, a large party there for Charlie Tomlinson's birthday. And of course, the Thomases uh, uh, Joe, um, the Thomases were went on to form Tom Street on the Red Albino. So the police came and they entered the house, the home illegally. Up goes the racket, and a bunch of people were arrested. And Norm Whalen, who John, who John Whalen's father, was a prominent lawyer in town, and they fought the charges and it went all the way to the the Supreme Court of Canada, and it reinforced what was known as castle law. So that goes back to old common law, um, you know, uh, open in the name of the king. Every every man's home is his castle. So anyway, uh, that kind of imbued that that scene with a sense of purpose, uh, because you, as you know, growing up in the eighties, um, social activism uh, became very prominent. I think of things like uh, Northern Lights, Tears Are Not Enough. Um, you know, everyone knew about the what was going on in apartheid South Africa, Little Stevie and Ain't Gonna Play Sun City. I mean, these were very – Oxfam was going into schools and telling kids about this stuff, and it was all over much music. So um, a peace, peace – um, a culture um, existed in St. John's, as we talked about earlier, of, you know, austerity, a very conservative culture. And like I said, the, the Fleming Street Massacre imbued that very small scene with a sense of purpose. Like, you know, um, cops were, were – and the, the governments of South Africa, for instance, were, you know – it was segregating black people, and you know this had been going on, and and then uh, when it happens here, it, like I said, it, it imbued that scene with a sense of purpose. You know, the uh, police brutality isn't just in South Africa or on the streets of uh, L.A. It's it's here. 
so and you, you got to realize these kids are punks too a lot of them you know they're following what the sex pistols were doing and and the clash so yeah the, the book is very much about youth culture and the intersection of music and politics you follow along with some of the major social issues and political movements. You can also very distinctly at, uh, attach uh, innovation and evolving in the music business and the type of songs that are being written. So a couple of things that you just mentioned that I want to uh, pick up on very quickly. Peace Accord, absolutely familiar with it. I was a neighbor of Sheila O'Leary, who was one of the organizers of the Peace Accord <laughs> yes, for a long exactly. time. Yeah. yeah, It was four women that started the Peace Accord. Yeah, and then Jeff Young Husband, little fur-packed action, Jigger, Jeff's a buddy of mine, uh, Fleming yeah. Street, I'd been in that house many, many times. I wasn't there for the massacre, but I absolutely had a few times there. Uh, and on that front, Roberta Thomas, who was actually a lovely artist as well, visual artist. She did a painting for my mother one time, so I just wanted to add that okay. in to the conversation. But through- she was kind of like a den mother, I guess, for all these the wayward youth of St. John's, right? Well, the wayward youth had a habit of making their way to that house on Fleming, I can tell you that much. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so inside of this, you know, for me, it's exactly when I grew up. You know, I, we're not going to say I was part of the scene. I was a patron of the scene, um, mm. very much unlike some of the people you interviewed for the books. But, you know, this, I think, is bigger than simply talking about underground culture, rebellion, punk music. It actually is a... I think it's a commentary on societal change right at that moment in time. You know, you extended from 77 to 95, but a lot of things changed in this world during that time frame, and we weren't on the outside looking in. We were part of it. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, there was we were going through uh, an existential crisis in the late 80s, early 90s. I mean, the foundations of, of all our cultural beliefs, you know, like the, the church was as we knew it was the fa- was collapsing we had the Hughes commission and um and then you know the 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 fishery collapsed and overnight 30,000 people were out of work i mean that had a c- clear influence on um these particularly these young women and of course then le- at the same time there was low level flying um in um in labrador and there was all kinds of protests over that uh i also bring up sheila talked about this that you know uh, there was all these cities around canada that were um declaring uh nuke free zones and uh little did they know john murphy was like oh that's a great idea let's announce nuke free zone in st john's and little did they know that uh, nuclear submarines from nato nuclear submarines were um refueling in St. John's Harbor at night under the cloak of darkness. (laughs) It's absolutely true. So, Mike, let's try to pitch it outside. You know, it's one thing for me to be interested in the book because a lot of these people I knew and what have you, if you weren't part of the St. John's scene or if you weren't part of uh, that era or that style or genre of music, or even if you're kind of disinterested in political protests through music as the medium, what's this book mean for someone who's not inside of those particular ballywicks? Um, well, it really offers um, an interesting view of St. John's at that time. And, of course, this, this story has national implications. Um, and I mentioned the Fleming Street Massacre. But when you think of the United States, for instance, and things like no-knock warrants, there is direct implications of what is known as castle law to that. I mean, they, they have a different set of uh, legal frameworks. But, um, and also, look, Gene uh, Long who was, you know, one of the adults in the room for all these kids putting together the peace accord. He even mentions, like, you know, he's sitting down for his morning coffee, and this is still an issue for the courts, even though the Supreme Court of Canada um, really 
strongly emphasize that, you know, this is wrong. This should not be happening because the government, this is the, the, the provincial government fought this all the way up through provincial and um, federal courts. But um, it's, I think it's a story about how, I know it's a story about how a bunch of young people created something out of literally nothing. And many of your listeners probably don't realize that um, the punk movement because I always say DIY or do-it-yourself is punk, and punk is DIY, so punk is inherently <laughs> uh, political, so DIY, doing things yourself, is a political s- statement. So um, it's a story about youth culture. It's a story about uh, how St. John's in Newfoundland was going through this massive existential crisis, and young people etched out um, their own identities out of nothing. And then I also talk about the LGBTQ plus movement. I think that generation were the first generation to say, you know what, enough is enough. These are human beings uh, and they deserve the same human rights as that everyone does. Uh, because that in itself, you're going through, uh, you know, this worldwide pandemic of the, of the AIDS uh, epidemic. And all of these things culminated in uh, the explosion of uh, uh, music and youth culture worldwide. And I, it is a, a, a very specific lens into um, our culture and how it evolved and changed, but also the music industry, how that grew. And I think of Fred Brokenshire, who unfortunately passed away mm-hmm. uh, not too long ago, and he started Music Industry Association, which is now Music NL. So it's a lens into how culture became you know a grassroots movement and gained traction and because also uh, i should mention in 1992 the provincial government started pouring money into the cultural industries because um you know they're trying to create uh, economic incentives they're trying to get the economy going you know and i think of things like the growing uh, sprung greenhouse and all that you know before that so um they're trying to diversify the economy but uh yeah so I know I'm going on a bit of a tangent here, but the point is that it's it's how does a community evolve and grow with nothing? Like th- these people start with nothing, just an idea. And when I go back to the peace accord, also um, that gave young people an opportunity to share their voice, because a lot of the bands and a lot of peace activists that's that's where they started, um, getting up on stage. You know, like Rick Mercer and Andrew Younghusband were doing Corey and Wade's Playhouse. Like, all these things happened. Um, and it's a really fascinating lens into how a small city with a very small group of people create what's now a burgeoning industry. I mean, everyone recognizes Newfoundland now as this cultural hub in probably Canada. But, uh, you know, as, as you well know, you know, back in the day when you say, where are you from? And he said, Newfoundland. Oh, I'm so sorry. <laughs> yeah. and, and now it's like, where are you from? Oh, you're from Newfoundland. Oh, that's so exciting. <laughs> well, and that is a real shift that's happened in the last decade. Well, we punch above our weight. Anything to do with the arts. Uh, I really do have to go, Mike. But inside the the four organizers, Rhonda Pelly, Dana Warren, Sheila, and I can't remember the other girl, the other woman. Jennifer Dick. Jennifer Dick. There you go. Yep. All right. Good to have you on the show, Mike. I'm really enjoying the book. So, folks, it's called Let It All Fall, Underground Music and the Cultural Rebellion in Newfoundland, 1977 to 1985. Uh, thanks for sending me a copy, and you can get this wherever you find your books. Yeah, thanks very much, Patty. Uh, and for your listeners, I, I think it's a, a fun read, very informative, and it's, you know, it's shaped into uh, conversations happening amongst all these friends. So, uh, yeah, 
I hope your uh, hope your uh, readers enjoy it, and I'll be doing some signings. And oh, I should mention that the launch, the actual book launch, Breakwater Spring or sorry, Summer Book Bash is happening July twentieth at the Farmers Market. Good on you. Good luck with it. It's a fun read. All right. Thanks very much, buddy. Thanks, Mike. Stay in touch. Bye-bye. All right. Bye-bye. It's Mike Efferlin. All right. Good stuff. Let's take a break. Sean's there in the queue to talk about a PSA I'd like to share with the listeners. And Charles Place. Charlie's Place also in the queue. Don't go away. Take a break. Join us weekdays from 1230 to 1 p.m. as we discuss anything and everything that's happening now. It's all on the table during your VOCM lunch break. Welcome back to the show. Uh, let's go to line number one. Good morning, Sean. You're on the air. Good morning, Mr. Daly. How are you this morning? Doing fine, thanks. How about you? Uh, I wish it could be better, uh, Mr. Daly. Uh, but what happened to me uh, back in February, and it's still going on, is a, is a tragedy in St. John's as far as I'm concerned. Um, I uh, had uh, drug and alcohol problems for a lot of years. Uh, I ended up on the street. I uh, spent over a year on the street, and uh, I quit all my habits except smoking cigarettes. And uh, all I can say is I moved into a little uh, bachelor's apartment on Amherst Heights. And uh, when my family moved uh, last to my stuff out, uh, there was a box of pennies uh, in my stuff that I... Unfortunately, well, fortunately, didn't uh, give to the uh, to the bank when people were supposed to. I started looking through the pennies and noticed there was uh, several several uh, American pennies in it. So uh, I noticed one, and it uh, had no well on uh, the Liberty. You couldn't notice it. I brought it to the coin man there on. Uh, um, Torbay Road, just off Torbay Road, Pearson Street, I think it is. And um, he thought it was very rare. Immediately, I went home and started pulling out all the American pennies there and starting watching uh, videos on them in the States, uh, from the States and everywhere, coin collectors, pneumatics, and uh, became enthralled in this. And uh, it became not just a hobby, but a uh, but obsession almost. I'm on welfare. Uh, something happened to me a few years back that uh, I can't explain to anyone in this province. And uh, I uh, saved up my money and Christmas time. I purchased on eBay a bank bag of pennies that someone had uh, picked up at a bank in the United States and uh, had them shipped to me from eBay, on eBay. Okay, uh, so what happened? 5,000 pennies, and uh, I started going through them. I found that first, a 1958 double-dyed penny. Double-dyed meaning obverse, that means the head of the coin, and double-dyed meaning uh, that it had double printing on the, uh, on the date. Uh, the Liberty, the Green God we trust, a very, very rare penny. As a matter of fact, known as one of the rarest American pennies you can find in the world, if not the rarest. And what's it worth? In pristine condition, a 1909 DDB on the bottom, in pristine condition, uh, added this bag of pennies, all the same night, 
Mr. Daly, I have bipolar and COPD. Uh, one of the reasons why I'm not working now. And uh, I uh, mentioned this when I found him that night after up two or three days straight going through the pennies. That's one of the things with my, uh, with my uh, disease. Uh, I uh, get very excited when I find something uh, I like. And uh, I also had a 1982 D copper penny. Uh, in 1982, pennies in the United States were changed from copper to zinc to save money at the mints and uh, save money for the government. And the 1982 D penny at the time was one of the rarest pennies you could find in the world itself. Unfortunately, I don't know why. Uh, I had the 1982 D there. I didn't mention that, but that night after up two or three days straight going through the 5,000 pennies that I found the uh, 1909 BDB and the 1958 uh, wheat pennies double died. Uh, well, just for a second, just one second, Sean. No, uh, but here's my point, Mr. Daly. Okay, let's go. Uh, I fell asleep that night uh, for three hours after I found the uh, 1909 and the 1958 uh, wheat penny. And the next morning, I was so excited. I have a friend next door. I live on Amherst. I live on Amherst Heights here, like I said, in a little bachelor's apartment. And I went next door. Uh, I didn't have a cigarette. I went next door, I was talking uh, about five minutes, and uh, when I came back, unfortunately, I didn't have my door locked. The first time uh, after being threatened, my life, uh, before this ever happened, I always had my door locked. And uh, when I came back, sir, uh, I had my cigarette outside my door, it was winter time, in February, like I said, and uh, I checked the container that I had uh, these three pennies in and more, and the three rarest pennies were gone. Mr. Daly, I was robbed. Uh, with my bipolar disorder, my heart sank, knowing that uh, even just the 1958 double die in, in pristine condition, there was only two known at the time in the world was well worth sure. well uh, over 300,000 American. So, okay, if you had something worth $300,000 American, did you consider having a, a safer spot for it? And did you tell anybody about how valuable some of the stuff in your house might be so maybe you know exactly uh, who stole Mr. it? Mr. Uh, Mr. Daly, uh, I found it that night. Uh, I was about to... Uh, put it in a safety deposit box at the bank immediately when I woke up that well I didn't even plan on going to sleep I was okay Sean I was just so excited that uh, Sean just uh, I do have to go but so did you tell anyone about it because if you did then they knew exactly what they were looking for and consequently you might absolutely know who did this uh, sir, there was tracks in the snow did you tell anyone I about went it to the house next door and I didn't tell anyone. Uh, no one should have known. I was excited that night. Only the first people in this house or close to this house knew. Well, uh, there was tracks in the snow from my door leading to one of the... And the so other you called the police? 
Okay. Uh, Did you? Can I keep, can I keep talking? I phoned the police. and. Uh, okay, no, I think we're at the end okay. of the story, simply because of the time on the clock. But So the police are aware and the police are going to investigate her. What did they tell you? Very quickly. Laughed in my face and there was no investigation done, sir. First, they told me that they don't, uh, they don't investigate pennies. And, uh, well, supposing it was a stamp, if it's, if it's worth a lot. Okay. Sean, I do have to get off to the break here, but there's a certain place in town that buy things like that. I'd be absolutely knocking on their door to make them aware of the fact that whatever someone's presenting may indeed be a stolen item. Uh, good luck with it. Let me know if you ever have any success getting it back. Thanks, Mr. Sean. Daly, uh, Thanks, thank you for your time. Anytime. Good luck. All right, there we go. That's too bad. Uh, let's take a break. When we go back, Charlie's Place. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number two. Good morning, Justin. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How you doing this morning? Not bad, I suppose. How you doing? Not too bad, sir. Hats off to that gentleman there. I hope he gets his uh, gets his pennies recovered. Uh, we need uh, every cent we can get these days, I think. <laughs> well, if it's actually worth that amount of money, then someone's going to have to pop up somewhere to try and sell it. Uh, anyway, strange one. Uh, Justin, it's been a long time since you and I talked, but if I remember correctly, we're talking about the issue inside of uh, Kruger Inc. getting potential access to Charlie's Place to harvest wood when it's traditional lands, whether it be fishing, trapping, hunting, whatever the case may be. Where are we? Yes, for sure. Yeah, I think that's the last time we spoke there, Patty, was uh, I think we were planning these uh, these expeditions uh, to nail down these threatened and endangered species and uh, these need more information on these cultural sites. So, uh, yeah, as you know, uh, in, in 2022, now this area was released from an environmental assessment, EA, from the Department of Climate Change, and that's what that means, that they never had to, I guess, provide a detailed or any type of EA so our first thing on the list now, you know, it's not, it's all fine and dandy for us to be saying, okay, there's blue felt, boreal felt like, and there's all these threatened endangered species, Martin. But, you know, at the end of the day, it's reasonable to say that you you wouldn't need scientific proof, right? So we just uh, we just came off our third. Now, these are preliminary expeditions that only took, like, two days. We had a provincial botanist in there. Uh, Birds Canada was our just recent one. We had members from the province up there cataloging these uh, 200-year-old maples, Patty, that are in this river deltas and stuff that are, you know, that's totally massive. The two of us just could touch finger to finger on these on these amazing trees. So uh, we just, uh, our most recent one, as I said, Birds Canada, we came there, we cataloged 50 different bird species. You know, a lot of these species are are not, uh, you know, threatened or endangered, but to have all these in one one area is amazing enough. But we, uh, in just two days, and with little to no work, you know, this is right off the main road. Anybody could go up there now and pull out of their truck and just jump out and, and uh, see these birds. One patty was the uh, olive-sided uh, flycatcher. And it's a very, very rare bird. It's a miniature-sized bird, and a little bit bigger than a swallow, we'll say. And this guy needs an amazing, uh, unique habitat and with a real wide range so if you, if you look online, they've done a bit of research and they're talking to these experts that we had up to three experts and, you know, they know every little sound, like it's unreal, and they can pick, distinguish between these birds. But, yeah, this one is uh, listed, and it's not only listed to, to the government's committed to protecting the, the species, but it's protecting its habitats. And the other one, Patty, we found was this rusty blackbird, which is pretty much common. As, you almost can't distinguish it between the—no, I can't— <laughs> Between the original, the normal blackbird, 
But, uh, you know, we've nailed down two or three different places and seen these birds, and there's a new species of woodpecker that we found up there now that's, you know, he's, he's not endangered or threatened, but it's new to Newfoundland and uh, just saw it out. So these are just uh, preliminary, uh, you know, two-day expeditions, and before that, in the uh, first week in June, we had a uh, provincial botanist up there, and uh, Patty, uh, amazing, amazing stuff. We uh, confirmed the uh, blue felt liking that we said was up there, right? And, uh, and not only that, we found this uh, white-rimmed shingle liking. This is federally listed and never found Newfoundland. And there was 31 other samples taken that uh, the individual, this expert that we had up there, man, phenomenal the knowledge that these guys can maintain. But uh, 31 samples we took, and a lot of them were didn't have one clue of, of what species was, or you know, just more research has to be done on it. Then. Well, you can only do so much in two days, and you can't protect a species without protecting its habitat. Charlie's place is 65 or 67 square kilometers, or something along those lines. Um, just very out of my own personal curiosity, you mentioned a new kind of woodpecker new to the province. The only one I'm familiar with is the northern flicker. What kind of woodpecker is it? Now, this is, uh, I think it's a yellow belly sap sucker is actually his name. Now, how we found it was mm-hmm. actually, we were, well, they heard their they heard their drumming, right, which would be their communicating. And you see them up on the transformer sometimes making their racket. They're saying, well, what are they doing, boys? <laughs> but it's just a communication thing. So we heard it a number of times. And the telltale uh, uh, way of seeing that they're there, they they don't they does a real distinguished the way they feed, like around hardwoods, which they need. They'll go around almost almost in an inch square. If you if you had a measuring tape, they'll go around this tree, so the sap comes out, and the insects will get stuck, and you'll feed on the sap. So that was the one of the first telltale, you know, that that, that the species is in the area. It was uh, no, it, it's amazing. Boy, we got two uh, two samples out of our pine martin hair snake boxes there. And you're talking, you're talking red maples, red pine, uh, this black ash bush that's not supposed to be over in this area, you know. And coming up now in the middle of July, we're hoping to get uh, Memorial University back now for this flora and fauna study for all these different plants in there. And it's, it's just amazing, boy. Not even touching on the cultural, uh, you know, value of the area, but just the species. And the fact that an EA wasn't done here, and you know, I think it's time for some answers or time for some action before these harvesters go in or these drill rigs go in and drill down and ruin this habitat. You know, and God forbid they pull up some bones of some species or, or some, some of our ancestors or, or, or something. You know, just before before anything is done, I think I think this warrants it does warrant a a, a more detailed investigation, right? Uh, Justin, so just a couple of quick things. If was this area uh, recommended as a protected zone by the work done by WERAC? Because I know it was nominated for uh, to be a wilderness reserve. I don't know what the outcome of that was, but was this protected or recommended protection inside the WERAC report? Yes. Now the recommendation is not uh, not complete. Yeah, no, uh, Patty. But we uh, we've submitted a uh, we went around door to door pretty much all of our elders, and we identified 50 places now of uh, cultural significance now not only the you know the, the flora and fauna and stuff but all these cultural dwellings and stuff so this uh, is a good thing actually that this recommendation wouldn't complete otherwise this information probably wouldn't have made it this most recent stuff so uh, we got a little bit troubled there <laughs> and a lot of people other people did but it wasn't included in these 10 areas uh, put out by the province there uh, these protected areas got to go through these processes but Terry's place is, uh, is indeed 
in a max, the, you know, in, in line, I guess, for protection. It's just that the minister now has to make the decision to enact this emergency reserve, which will give us two years to gather this data, which is more than reasonable, I think, right? Uh, keep us in the loop here. I mean, if people are interested, Charlie's Place is named after a guy named Charlie Francis. I believe one of the Indian chiefs in the area is uh, Calvin. He's great-great or great-great-great-grandson. Is Calvin still with us? Oh, yes. Oh, definitely. We've, uh, like you say, we've been, this is everyday struggle now, contacting these other, you know, we get so much support, Patty. It's, it's unreal, you know what I mean? And we're having meetings with these companies and stuff, but, uh, you know, it's, for instance here, we've got a, we're losing a lot of habitat here just behind Appleton, you know what I mean, in regards to the two ponds up there now that's totally silted and, uh, you know, pretty much inhabitable for trout and everything. And then there's another big find of gold and lithium just in the Paul's Pond area. Now, that would be south of Charlie's Place, and Charlie's Place sits smack dab in the middle of these two areas. You know, you're talking about billions and billions of dollars of profit for these companies. And, you know, I think it would be a benefit for everybody, by just to leave a little, little area for these, for these species to, you know, to maintain and maintain yourself and filter out into the country. And, and so we can, and our locals here, you know, they they work here in Glenwood and Alden, but, you know, that's home. That's on the weekends. That's every day off. That's their, that's their home, right? Totally get it, John. A bit late for the uh, newscast, Justin, but I appreciate the update this morning. Let us know when you have more info. No worries, buddy. Thanks a million. My pleasure. All the best. Bye-bye. Here we go. Charlie's Place. Uh, interesting uh, work that they're doing out there to try to see whether or not it deserves that designation as a wilderness reserve. Let's take a break. Those of you in the queue, you stay right there. We're going to talk about the food fishery. And then we're remembering a lady named Helen Murphy. She was at the helm of the Inclusion Choir at Stella Circle, I believe, for some 15 years. Ron McClenahan is there to talk about Miss Murphy, and then we're going to be speaking with you on the topic of your choosing. Don't go away. Saturday morning, join us for the Irish Newfoundland Show. Send your request to irishnl at vocm.com or submit them online at vocm.com. Welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number three. Terry, you're on the air. Hi there. Good morning, Patty. Morning to you. How are you doing? Best kind, I think. How about yourself? Oh, not too bad, boy, considering, you know, two health issues. Uh, people got it worse. <laughs> uh, yes, they probably do. What then? A lot of people have it worse than me and you, that's for sure. What's on your mind this morning, Terry? A few questions there, Patty, about the food fishery. Okay. Um, a bit confusing there. I, I got somebody to go out and catch some fish for me, but he's also catching it for somebody else. Is that okay? Can he catch up for more than one person? I don't know. There's different applications for uh, designating a person to fish for someone who has a disability. I don't think there's a limit to the numbers of people that you can satisfy or serve as long as you fill out an application for each person that is going to be designated. Okay. So say if you was going to go out, uh, you could catch for more than one person. I, don't, I mean, I'm not going to say uh, absolutely yes or absolutely no, but if you applied to fish for three people and came in with 15, then you should be best kind. But I do know you have to apply. There's an application process. Uh, oh, yes, for a disability, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, I think I'm straight on that because because cousin said he catch me some fish, and then his brother told me, he said, no, he said you can only catch it for one person. But I didn't think that was correct. Well, I don't think, like, I mean, for instance, if I have a uh, hunting, moose hunting license uh, because I'm doing it for a not-for-profit or for someone with a disability, I'm pretty sure that application process allows for more than one. i tell you what, I'm going to click the link. Uh, da, 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 one per person. 
It is one per person. Okay, so yep. he can only he He's can only right. fix for one. Yeah, okay. Well, he wouldn't be able to say to go out one day and catch up for one person and the next day for me. Apparently not. That's what it says there when I clicked on the application. It says one per person. Yeah, gotcha. Uh, Patty, can I have a little conversation about darts? Absolutely. A little titanium warfare. Love it. Okay, so it's about the Canadian Open. Now, the boys from here, they were up, up to, I think it was Quebec, and played the Canadian Open. Uh, Clarence Frackman and uh, Jason Canoe. They done, it seems like the boys done real well the weekend in representing Newfoundland. How well, how deep they go, and how come John Norman wasn't there? I don't know. I don't know if John was there or not. Now, to, to be honest with you, I wouldn't be able to say. But I've seen a clip of the boys playing there. My own care worker showed me a clip of them playing there on the phone. And uh, I don't know how well they done. I've been trying ever since before I got on the show to, to find out how they done. But I, I don't say they're back yet. Right. But I did see a still picture of the two of them there holding an envelope. And some money, so they won something. <laughs> so I just like to say, way to go, boys! I've played darts with the boys like ever so many years, and they're great dart players. Jason, go to Johnny Norman, Patty. I got to pick up with a Bayman boy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Johnny's from uh, Shea Heights. Yeah, I've played against Johnny many times, and his father. Yeah. I don't. I can't find anything on the Canadian Open, but I should be able to figure out how the lads did. Uh, what were their names again? What's Carnot's first name? Jason. Jason. And who's the other fellow? Clyde Spracklin. Clyde Spracklin. I'll put that in my search queue for the afternoon reading. Jason Carnot, Clyde Spracklin at the Canadian Open. Yeah, I can figure that out. Yeah. Yeah, I'm trying to get hold of my son. I couldn't get hold of him because I know he's following the boys there, right? I'm not. Uh, technology that I'm not aware of here, Patty. <laughs> well, I just Googled it up, and it just brought me to a landing page that didn't give me any real results, and that was the National Darts Federation of Canada. Uh, let's see here. Maybe this will give me a little bit better. No, this is 2022. Talking about the winners. Uh, 2022, that's not good to us. So it was up in St. Hyacinth in Quebec. I'll find out uh, sometime today. We'll talk about it tomorrow. So you played okay. darts with the boys. Are you any good? The boys, or the boys are great dart players. How about you? I was decent at it when I was able to play. I haven't been able to play for a while now because of my health reasons. What and kind of average? Of the, last part of my uh, leg and my foot there a while back. And I'm sorry to hear that. That was a complication with your diabetes or something? Yes, that's what it is exactly, Patty. You hit the nail right on the head. Terry, what kind of average did you have as a dart player? I had about 19 average. That's pretty good. That's double in now, Patty. That's not this... Open board stuff. Uh, double in. Okay. Double in. It's quite a different game altogether, right, than, than open board. 100%. I mean, most of the leagues is all power in. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Which is a bit more fun versus taking X number of turns trying to pluck a double and ending up on double one to get out. So, yeah, that can make for a long, frustrating day at the board. Yeah, that's true. That's true. So, uh, before I let you go, what's your double? 20. Really? Oh, yeah. I'm terrible at the double tops. When uh, when I used to get up to the board, if we was on double 20, the boys would put their darts in their pocket. There you go. Yes, you are. I was able to clink them in there a little bit. 
<laughs> Sounds good. Well, whoever's got their favorite double is top of the board, they're probably a pretty good player versus most people either, you know, depending on left hand, right hand, go over to the 12s or the 13s or whatever the case may be. Anyway, but I appreciate the. Every one year in the league, me and Clyde had a little challenge to each other uh, because it was never done in the league before to break on 170. So we had a little thing going there like, who could do it first, right? So anyway, I did it first which was a, not an easy accomplishment, let me tell you. Of course not. And shortly after that, Clyde did it. So, yeah. so obviously you've banged in a couple of uh, 180s as well as if you can get out on 170. No, that was double in. That instead of breaking on the double, break on the bull. Yeah. Yeah. Treble 20, treble 20, bull. No, bullseye first. Oh, you got to go bullseye first. Oh, of course, if you're doubling in. Fair enough. If you're doubling in, yeah. Got it. Yeah, yeah, I've hit a few 180s, whatever those. Yeah, good for you. I've never, uh, never hit a, a 180, 140 tops. Okay. Yeah. That was fluke too. Uh, Terry, good to have you on the show. I'm going to fly and out about Jason and Clyde uh, as best I can this afternoon. All right, thanks, buddy. Have a good one. You too, buddy. All the best. Bye. Bye bye. That's not a bad way to open. Bullseye, treble 20, treble 20. Oh, I should ask him if you ever had a nine dart finish, right? And, you know, if you ever watch the pros play, it's, it's infuriating as it is impressive. You can play a game of darts in 90 seconds, 501s. 90 seconds, right? I almost feel like playing Dean Wynn Stanley's nine dart finish right now. Dave, want to queue it up or what? Let's do it. Listen, the nine darts, of course, is a remarkable feat. But if you ever watch darts on TV, the production quality of professional darts, especially if you're playing at the Alley Pally in London or what have you, is phenomenal. The emotion and the passion in the crowd and wearing their costumes and outfits is absolutely unbelievable. One of my favorite things about watching darts is the caliber of the commentators. And here's one of the legendary calls as Englishman Dean Wynn Stanley makes a nine-dart finish on live television at the Worlds. Taking a break. Do is hold his show, Wynn Stanley, John, but he's under pressure to do so now because... If Van der Voort breaks and then throws for a third set, he's in deep trouble. But this is more like it. A third 180 for the man they call over the top, Dean Wynn Stanley. I'm glad you said he's under pressure to do so because he's one of those players who absolutely thrives on that. He seems to respond to being in adversity. Now then, things are getting interesting, folks. And you know what that means in another one from Vanderbilt. What a leg of gods this is. Oh, two more up. Oh, double 12 for the night. Don't finish. I don't believe it. I don't believe it. Which family could hit nothing insane that suddenly produces a magical leg like that? Welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number six. Say good morning to the Director of Employment Services at Stella, uh, Stella Circle, and that's Rob McLennan. Rob, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Hi. Hi there. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Thanks for uh, uh, giving me uh, an opportunity to 
remember a, uh, a giant, uh, not only at Stella Circle, but uh, in this province and, and community for sure. Absolutely. You know, whether it be, even in the sidewalk, is a giant envelope of social justice. Helen Murphy was, she was a force of nature. <laughs> It, uh, so true, uh, so true, Patty. Uh, you know, originally from Placentia and uh, one of 10 children uh, growing up there. And then uh, all her work as a presentation sister, a teacher, a music teacher. You know, I, I think uh, while I'm calling this morning to think, you know, to, to reflect specifically, I guess, on, on the, the impact that she made, certainly with community singing. Uh, you know, you can't uh, can't just gloss over all those uh, incredible other impacts that Ellen had. You know, with the Provincial Association Against Family Violence, and oh my gosh, the Public Health Agency of Canada. It was uh, you know her work with those, with uh, supporting family resource centers. It truly uh, uh, it was a, a privilege and a, a pleasure to to have known Helen for. The nearly 15 years that she uh, she led the uh, uh, Stella Circle Inclusion Choir. Before we get into the Inclusion Choir, give us a couple of specifics of things she worked on, whether it be the Public Health Agency of Canada or other government programs or policy creators. Well, you know, Patty, I think you said it best when you referenced social justice, hey? If it had to do uh, with a matter that uh, really kept people on the margins, uh, on the outside looking in. That's where Helen Murphy was. And, you know, there are people who uh, who would have known her at those times, and so many did come out as her years as a uh, at the time of her death as people who knew her and, uh, you know, were in her, her many circles in uh, uh, various community endeavors that Helen was involved with. And uh, if it really, uh, you know, I, I think uh, to say that, the importance of connection uh, for Helen and recognizing that it's not, we don't all have the same goal making those connections, hey, to uh, understatement, but uh, connections with formal systems, connections with communities, with neighbors. Uh, you know, we see it at, at Stella Circle through, uh, you know, people experiencing the impacts of, of poverty, right? And, uh, and Helen, uh, very much early on, you know, she would describe herself as a, and I know this through the, the music that drew her and that she loved to sing and, and teach, but uh, songs of social justice, you know, uh, uh, the early 60s and the march on washington and and you know martin luther king i have a dream these are uh, this this was helen only you know it wasn't just about dreams it was about what she did you know and it was the life she lived and the example uh that she was to uh, so many I mean, there's a couple of quotes. I did see the tweet coming from your organization or the tweet thread from your organization, and she is a, a member of the Order of Newfoundland. What, you know, the Inclusion Choir wasn't just singing. It wasn't just choral music. It was a very unique feature led by Helen that brought people from different walks of life, different socioeconomic circumstances, to be to feel like they're part of a collective. So whether that be removing judgment or to feel accepted or to be part of community, you'd be better served than I would to be able to speak to what the Inclusion Choir meant, but it seems to me more than music. Oh, absolutely, uh, Patty. I mean, the you know, in some respects, the medium was the message, but uh, the message was, was so much bigger. You know, it was, as I mentioned, Helen would describe herself as a, you know, a child of the 60s and uh, a social justice champion. So uh, songs of Peter, Paul, and Mary and Pete Seeker and, uh, you know, the 
other uh, other great uh, artists of that era that that used music as music has so often been done it you know it it conveys that which sometimes can't be said and uh so those those messages were were huge uh pieces and the choir to this very day you know still follows that that lead we're st- we're still singing songs that helen curated but didn't have the opportunity to teach us right but then further to that let me say that it's i think for helen it was what doing a community choir as she did it uh, meant to her and to what she had just kind of known, I think, intuitively growing up as she did in a large family and then uh, being someone who naturally made connections, uh, you know, uh, could, could then facilitate through music. So it was uh, the songs that were sung. It was removing every single typical barrier to people singing so you mentioned like that that sense of the choir's name inclusion but removing those barriers so we were non-audition there was a firm belief that everybody can sing and and well and i would say that helen would assert should sing we've all got a song to sing it's just a, a question of having a place to do it and and do it together with others and that's what we did and the audiences that uh, that we would have sang for uh you know it was we, we were always part of of you know social significance i i would say you know if there was a uh, a new housing uh, affordable housing development that was opening or if the uh, premiers were visiting the council of federation were were in town there was the <laughs> the inclusion choir singing uh, you know if i had a hammer or a version of it uh, and that 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 was helen's vision and you say that everyone can sing uh, that, that message. Every time I hear someone say something even remotely like that, makes me think of Dr. Susan Knight, uh, who's the uh, director emeritus, I guess, of uh, Festival 500, and of course uh, involved at Memorial University. She would tell me that repeatedly when I tell her I can't sing, and she's telling me everyone can sing. So anyway, this one is a bit philosophical. I'm going to ask it anyway. Is you know, what did some creativity? or an outlet for creativity mean for individuals as they try to navigate whatever brought them into the realm of solo circle, whether it be for employment services or self-confidence or making friends or putting, you know, dropping your guard. What did the creativity mean? Patty, I'm so glad you asked that question because that's really what uh, I guess has, has been part of uh, me kind of stepping from my day job, I guess, to volunteer and work alongside Helen for all those years and, and our our, uh, our current uh, volunteers that remain uh, really loyal to the choir as well. And that's, um, you know, we we offer and have we were formed around Emmanuel House, our flagship program, which is a residential treatment program that's now also expanded to do day treatment as well. But the there's always been clinical offerings, right? People can can come and they can benefit through uh, great uh, modalities like dialectical behavior therapy and cognitive therapy and, and all the things. But there's this great area of research that, uh, uh, you know, supports uh, 
adjunctive therapies and expressive therapies, of which singing has long since been. And you know, not to suggest that you know, we Helen uh, was was a huge admirer and embraced. Uh, you mentioned Dr. Susan Knight, well, Festival 500 and symposia and uh, of various kinds, the music therapy community and the choral communities, and uh, she definitely uh, lifted up and, and as does the research that singing. <laughs> it, it's uh, Helen would say, you know, uh, to even now, uh, e- even if Helen were still with us, uh, I, I think I'd still be doing this call about the choir because uh, he, her humility was such that she would say, uh, you know, if anything, she might say that she she does ordinary things a, a little differently than uh, than is maybe typically done. But singing, uh, when a group of people sing together. You know, after a little time, their heart rate starts kind of aligning so that uh, their blood pressure starts aligning, breathing. Uh, you're, you know, it's, it's remarkable. Uh, and then the opportunities to have that affirmation from an audience, because uh, that I saw that time and time again. I see that time and time again through some 150 performances over the time that Helen was with us that uh, uh, people who don't always hear positive messages, you know, never underestimate that, right? We, we've all got a supporter. We've all got somebody that'll validate us and say, you know, good job, Patty or Rob, you know, keep it up. But uh, that's not the experience of a lot of, uh, a lot of people. And, you know, not to, oh, not to simplify, you know, what it means to be living in poverty or, uh, you know, not having access to adequate housing or all the things, you know, the, talk about the hierarchy of needs but all those things singing comes in there and it's a chance to come together make connections support each other and then uh you know regardless of your literacy because helen always found a way to uh, teach a song regardless right of uh, how someone related to the lyrics but yet taught about the lyrics uh and and I, I, I could go on. You know, she definitely uh, also spotted the importance of collaborations, right? So we've had the good fortune to collaborate with amazing uh, Newfoundland performers like Amelia Curran and Rachel Cousins and Shani Canuck. And uh, also, you know, uh, opportunities to uh, <laughs> one famous Christmas, we uh, we used to sing, be uh, not be the change, I'm sorry, but we used to sing a, a, a Johnny Reed uh, song. So we opened for his Christmas concerts uh, at Cochrane Church. And, uh, you know, these, again, not to oversimplify, but, uh, you know, we would go to, we would attend, oh my gosh, we would, uh, you know, uh, Tom Jackson and the Huron Carol, we would attend events and we would have dressing rooms and we still do. And, and you know, we're, we're performers. We, we were invited to the folk festival with Amelia Curran one year and uh, every member of this uh, Stella Circle Inclusion Choir, myself included, uh, were, uh, you know, were given passes for the weekend that said performer three reshaping identity patty uh to someone with you know not to get all uh, uh you know whatever you know uh heady about it but you know it's 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 changing uh changing identity and and having confidence and having a voice and singing for premieres you know uh when opportunities don't always present to have that that dialogue and share experience through song. I appreciate the time and the chat this morning, Rob. Thanks for this.
Patty, thanks so much for letting uh, or for giving this space to uh, remember a true champion known, uh, you know, in the coral community and in this area, I would say to you on a national and world stage for sure. Thanks, Rob. Stay in touch. Thank you. You're welcome. Bye-bye. It's Rob McLennan, Director of Employment Services at Stella Circle. Let's take a break. Jonathan is there to talk about a cross-Canada bike tour. Fair enough. And John wants to talk about the ALC. Don't go away. Join Brian Medor weekdays at noon for a comprehensive update on news from every corner on all levels. Newsmakers, weather, and more. Join us on your VOCM at noon. Uh, welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number one. Good morning, Jonathan. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Thank you so much for uh, giving me a, a forum to, to chat with your listeners this morning. Happy to do it. What's on your mind, sir? Well, I, I was just, um, I, I'm at the tail end of a Canada-wide uh, bicycle tour in uh, support of MS Canada, raising awareness and funds uh, for critical research. And um, I, I, I'm just realizing the importance of spreading the word as much as possible now that I'm at the end of my 50, 51-day journey. This is the last day we're cycling into St. John's. Uh, this afternoon, just got off the ferry uh, from the mainland earlier this morning, and uh, yeah, so w- what a great segue from your last your last um, uh, guest, Rob, who was talking about uh, people with uh, uh, Helen and and the link to to people who are living in poverty, people with disabilities. Uh, the the MS is a chronic and progressive neurological condition whereby uh, people have all sorts of different symptoms depending on where uh, the uh, the disease impacts the brain and the spinal cord. A lot of people are suffering from varying uh, abilities. They end up with walkers, mobility aids, and stuff like that. And the, the population of people living in Canada, almost 100,000 of us, uh, living with MS uh, are more likely to be underemployed or unemployed, uh, which really uh, takes its toll. Uh, the biggest issue for me has been the uncertainty. Uh, I am fortunate to be able to ride my bicycle 7,000 kilometers across the country and raise awareness for this cause, but I am one of uh, a few lucky ones. And uh, so I, I live with uncertainty of not being able to do this tomorrow and therefore the urgency of doing this today. And uh, so riding my bicycle when I got off the phone today, Patty, with, uh, with you into St. John's, hoping to be at the, the view uh, bar uh, after um, going up Signal Hill and coming down to see the Terry Fox Memorial. I've inspired, been inspired by Terry's journey uh, a long time ago, uh, before I was born, where he uh, he he did that marathon of hope and suffered through that pain so that others wouldn't have to. So I uh, I'm similarly looking to do uh, to do that. I've ridden my bike across Canada, uh, hoping to raise awareness and funds so that uh, others won't have to endure the same amount of pain, the same amount of uncertainty that I've lived through, that I've seen others live through living with MS. Good friend of mine has MS, so this is a music to my ears. Uh, 51 days made your way all the way to this province. Uh, uh, what do you expect to be in St. John's, number one? Six o'clock. That's my hope. I'm, <laughs> I'm running a little behind schedule now, but I'm going to get on my horse and we're going we're gonna to start pedaling shortly. Uh, so uh, up Signal Hill, down the Terry Fox Memorial, and uh, 
hopefully dinner at the, the View restaurant there. Uh, that's the goal. Uh, we'll see. We have uh, lovely, uh, lovely conditions right now. I'm hoping the wind's at my back. Uh, no rain, though. That's a great thing. Anytime there's no rain and you're on your bicycle, it's a great day. Uh, staring at this beautiful province that I've just come to for the second time in my life. I'm fortunate to be here, fortunate to be ending where Terry started. Uh, I just just fortunate to have the support with me. I've got a recreational vehicle that has followed me all along the way. This would not have been possible without their support. Uh, I don't know how others do it. I'm I'm riding my bicycle, and uh, if I'm tired, I get in the I get in the truck. If I need something to eat, I get in the truck. If I'm thirsty, I get in the truck. So I've been extremely fortunate to have a crew. We talked about Rob talked about community um, uh, on the on the on the prior call there. Uh, it with without this community, this would not be possible. And and I cannot sing to save my life, but it was nice to hear that Helen uh, had an opinion that everyone can sing. So there's still hope, which is a good segue because this journey is about bringing hope to the MS community, community here in Canada. Uh, and and you know what, uh, Patty, with a little bit of hope, a lot of determination, and a community around you you can make your dream happen. And this has been my dream for a number of years now that is uh, being fulfilled today. Well, if Terry Fox is on your mind, you must have had a pang of emotion coming just into Thunder Bay where the Marathon of Hope ended up. A couple of quick ones before we have to go, Jonathan. Uh, number one, where are you exactly? Are you in Port of Basque, like just left the ferry? Uh, Argentia. Oh, you're in Argentia. So you're going to make it by 6 o'clock then. Because I was going to say, if you're in Port of Basque, we will not see you at 6 o'clock today, <laughs> no. no matter no, what no, no. the wind gonna, is doing. I'm going to, I'm out uh, of Argentia. I was trying to find the best place to get reception here. Uh, so, yes, my hope it's about 140 kilometers. So as soon as I get on my horse, we will start pedaling and uh, and go as fast as possible. Yes, the memorial in, in Thunder Bay was uh, the most memorable moment for me of this entire trip. I, I hugged his statue in Victoria at the beginning. I, I spent a whole bunch of time in, uh, t in Thunder Bay at that memorial. I met up with a gentleman who's already raised over a million dollars for MS Canada in the last 18 years through a, an annual gala. His wife has MS. His wife was at the hospital when they brought Terry in. It was very meaningful for him to have me do this journey and meet me at the memorial. I uh, one of the few moments on the trip where I cried uh, because uh, because of just how inspirational it was to be in his presence. Well, you know, when Paul Canadians think that uh, Terry Fox is maybe the greatest Canadian of all time, and of course the memorial would indicate September 1st, 1980, where the Marathon of Hope ended outside of Thunder Bay. Uh, for folks who want to donate, what can they do? Where do they go? There's a there's a website. Um, it's four words. It's MS Bike across canada.ca so ms bike across canada.ca is the project website there's a donate now button there's lots of information you can either uh do that or just follow uh all, all of the updates we posted throughout the last 50 days on instagram facebook twitter you can follow me live as i head into st john's on the twitter feed uh and uh just looking forward to meeting more kind and generous Canadians uh, that we've seen just now coast to coast. Everyone is welcoming welcoming us with a, a, a big, warm smile, some, some hugs, 
uh, you know, all sorts of things. It was actually some some uh, some uh, locals. Well, not from Newfoundland, but they were here to visit. They were on the ferry. I think a few of them from uh, Nova Scotia, and they said. Uh, if you want to spread the news, you have to give Patty a call so they obviously know about the show. Cool. Uh, they're riding their, their, their Harley Davidsons uh, across the province right now, so uh, kudos to them. Uh, they said I wouldn't remember their names, so they just said, call us the Tinas, the Four Tinas. So thank you to the Four Tinas for telling me to, to give you a call, Patty. I'm really glad you did, Jonathan. How old are you? Where are you from? I'm, I'm I'm 39, turning 40 next month. I'm from Toronto, born. I, I, I was born in Ottawa, raised in Montreal, and now living in Toronto. And I'm just blessed to have been able to see each and every province throughout this trip. And, and just so grateful to end it where Terry started. And uh, just looking forward to meeting uh, a few more people tonight. Born and raised in the Ottawa Valley, now in the concrete jungle that is one of my favorite canadian cities it gets a bad rap that is toronto welcome to the province jonathan having a safe jonathan have a safe ride into the city and we just got a call from the folks at view they're looking forward to seeing you this evening thank you so much patty take care you too buddy all the best bye-bye well there you go that was pretty great uh final break of the morning don't go away welcome back to the show uh let's go to line number two good morning john you're on the air good morning patty how are you this morning i'm doing very well thanks for asking how about you not bad, Patty. I was phoning about the uh, these new uh, VLT uh, vending machines they have in places like Dominion. Uh, you can buy scratch tickets. Me wife, when we go to Dominion and pick up our groceries, uh, she uh, she picks up these scratch tickets. She used to pick them up at the local convenience store, but now when we go to Dominion, there's one there as also. You can pick up a scratch tickets from a vending machine yeah there's i can't remember the story there's something like 30 or 40 in atlanta canada these self-serve machines so these the scratches or the pull tickets you can get those in all kinds of bars too where they have the uh, the pull tickets in a little vending machine but i've never used one so i don't know what products are in there is there anything beyond scratch tickets or can you get like a lot of 649 ticket can you Yes, level okay. six forty nine. I'm I'm not sure, but he, I I know one thing. Uh, there was a man there, a nice man, and he um, he offered her uh, the first day it opened up if she wanted a, a free uh, free lotto forty nine ticket. Uh, she had to show her ID, of course, to prove. Now, me seventy four year old wife uh, was old enough to buy a scratch ticket, you know. But uh, I think it's a great idea, you know. Well, I guess it has, uh, it's a double-sided coin, Patty, you know. Uh, But uh, I like it because she found when she did the scratch tickets, there's a lot of, um, a lot of, letters and uh, words on the uh, on the crosswords that are uh, that are uh, the same words on uh, several tickets, you know, in the same spots, and and some tickets she notices. With the words on the scratch tickets, on the crosswords, uh, she can almost tell, you know, I had this one before and I think it's a winner, you know. (laughs) So uh, she's a very superstitious old lady. And uh, I was wondering, um, if I had a million dollars, could I purchase one or could I get the government to put it outside our door (laughs) so she could get them all the time, Patty? (laughs) 
unlikely. Uh, it certainly is unlikely. I have a quick question for you, though. You have to be a certain age to play the lotto, so do you have to present or put an ID or something in, or can anyone just walk up like a little kid and buy a scratch ticket? No, sir. Uh, apparently, uh, I had to. She had to use her uh, her uh, driver's license. Yes. Okay. Yes. That makes sense. Yes, and uh, had to be scanned, and uh, uh, she got a she got a free uh, Lotto Forty Nine. Now you know, Patty. She never won on Lotto Forty Nine. She likes the scratch tickets mostly. But what I have to say, Patty, it's a great idea. You know. It is a great idea to have one right in the basement. I, you know, she wouldn't go out of the house uh, except for groceries, and then she could pick up her scratch tickets there. And you know, I know another thing, Patty. You know, if uh, I'd save so much money on bingo if she had a scratch machine, I guess until it was empty. <laughs> John, are, am I being pranked here this morning? <laughs> Hello, Patty. Boy, this is Shan. How are you? How are you? I was talking earlier there about. Uh, about the um, <laughs> about the robbery here in my apartment on uh, Amherst Heights, I just wanted to well let the people know. Uh, well, John, I'm <laughs> I'm glad you did, and I appreciate the call. There you go. <laughs> yeah, I know they are a thing. I've never used them to be honest with you, but you know, would be for those who are. Uh, frequent flyers with the lotto games, of which it's endless opportunity. Talk about superstition inside of of a betting. And, and you mentioned bingo. When we were young minor hockey players, we worked a lot of bingos, a ton. Whether you were selling the, uh, oh, my God, what were those uh, pull tabs called back in the day? There was only one brand of them out there. Can't remember, but uh, when the other one of the jobs that you'd have at the uh, bingo was to go around with the cards, of course, because this is prior to the paper cards and the bingo dabber. This would be the window slider cards. So you'd be going around with a massive armful, and people would get sick looking at their card because they're not having any luck. There was a few people, and it was this was constant. They would have uh, the superstition associated with the card. So whether it be they didn't want one with the corners beat up, or whether it be they would refuse to play one with I-22, or whatever number that they thought was a bad luck or bad omen for their opportunity to... Uh, win on a straight line or the four corners or the postage stamp or the full card even in the jackpot round. So, yeah, superstition goes a long way inside the world of betting, no doubt about it. Yeah, and I, I've never used one of these uh, self-serving uh, kiosks, so I assume that you would have had to scan something because, uh, is it, Dave, you got to be 19 to buy a lotto ticket, don't you? Yeah, I thought so. 19. Final check-in on the Twitter feed. <laughs> We're a VOCM open line. You can follow us there. Our email address is openlineofvocm.com. And pretty good show to kick off the week here today. And uh, tell the newsroom to get ready because I'm checking out here now, David. And we will indeed pick up this conversation again tomorrow morning right here on VOCM and Big Land FM's Open Line. On behalf of the producer, David Williams, I'm your host, Patty Daly. Have yourself a safe, fun, happy day. We'll talk again in the morning. Bye-bye.